Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, and we're recording for Contrarian's Corner for the Netflix original movie, Mute. Our first Netflix original movie. Is it? Yeah, I guess it is. No, Cam might have been a Netflix Okay, that original. was a bonus episode. In the, Doesn't count. <laughs> in the numeric episodes, this is our first uh, Netflix original. Hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by Julio. Julio, we have a special guest this week. Yes, we do. An thematically appropriate guest. From Netflix and Swill, Dan oh, Brennick. <laughs> it's me. Uh, I was wondering at what point do you want me to start talking? And uh, whatever, I, I like being polite and letting people do their thing. Uh, hi, yeah, it's it's me, the guy who who suggested this movie. That's all right. It's on brand. It's 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 good. It's good. Uh, tell us a little bit about Netflix and Swill, Dan. For like, I can't imagine. I, I would imagine most of our listeners already listen to your show, but still, just do the pitch. Uh, it's, I I would I would agree with you. I'd I say it's a uh, it's a very you know concentric circles uh, inter- interlapping each other. With you guys, probably the bigger circle. Uh, but. Uh, we are a podcast that reviews uh, Netflix shows and movies and uh, talk about Netflix current events while also, uh, in our third segment, typically reviewing a garbage can movie that our viewers have made us uh, watch. <laughs> so this the whole like swill part of Netflix and swill, I've been listening to your show for a while, and uh, the swilling has kind of like decreased almost to being almost non-existent. Like I'd forgotten that there was swill. And then I think in a recent episode, uh, your co-host Caleb brought it back up. What's going on? Are you guys getting healthy? Because I know we don't drink as much as we used to <laughs> back when we recorded. Oh, no. Uh, I well, there, there were personal issues in my house that uh, basically were like required me to stop drinking wow so i don't want to i don't want to go much further than that uh it yes it's very it was a very serious situation for a while that uh basically stopped me drinking and then i was like oh it feels nice to not feel like fucking garbage the morning after recording uh i like this but caleb still drinks Uh, oh caleb doesn't give a fuck caleb (laughs) will do whatever he wants (laughs) so what's the what's the dominant soda in your part of the country is it coca-cola oh god Yes. For some reason, I was like, going to say sw- I, swilling big red, but I wasn't sure if big red's hot in in your part. No, no, like mm, I don't even know. Like you can walk into any restaurant, and it'll either be Coke or Pepsi, and then if it's if it's not the other one, it's uh it's me flipping out. Like uh yeah, I want a Coke. Uh, is Pepsi fine? Absolutely not. <laughs> what do you fucking think I am? Some peon? That's so funny. Like Pepsi's so hard to come by in st- in uh, like restaurants here. Yeah, it's always Coke and Dr Pepper. Yeah. The problem is if you if you rebrand as Netflix and Coke, then 
they're thinking they'll think it's cocaine. Yeah, yeah, we don't need that. We don't need hard drugs on. on or the just Coca Cola would come down with the hammer of Thor <laughs> and say, "I don't think so." This this is not the usual uh, soda. Is not the usual topic du jour here on the. We have to ease into this, Alex. It's it's a very complex movie that we're dealing with today. So going from uh, uh, the synopsis for our buddies at Netflix and Swill, we are the Contrarians. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, first and foremost, thank you. Secondly, just to kind of bring you up to speed, uh, what we like to do here on uh, the Contrarians is rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we like to say. Find a movie highly ranked, aka fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and make a case for why it needs to be taken down a peg or on the other side of the coin, find a rotten film, a nasty green splotch and make a case for the solid merit in it. Uh, seeing as though we are dealing with this Netflix original mute, which stands at a meager, I believe 20% on the old RT. It's a 20 percenter, which uh, is probably on average for the rotten movies we do. Yeah. That's like right there in the middle of the bottom tier. And, th- but this is also, I mean, it wasn't flooded with reviews when I was like searching for the quotes. It, it's, no. I mean, it w- would you say it was a popular uh, Netflix release? This was before Netflix was just releasing a new movie almost every week, right? Uh, no, this was like early 2018, which uh, that was around the time where, yeah, it was a new movie every single oh, week. Oh, so it was so. when it was happening. This was in the wave <laughs> as it was breaking. Yeah, this was in the wave of Netflix just being like, oh, you're a filmmaker? Okay, make your movie. How much do you need? Here you go. Interesting you mentioned that because I had a really hard time finding anything in terms of budget for this. I don't know if how that works. If they, if it's They don't like giving out those numbers. Yeah. So like it has to be like self-reported by like the director or something. Like We're still guessing on The Irishman, despite the fact that... <laughs> it's Marty you know. Scorsese, but... <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. I-, I wonder what the the requisite is for that. Cause you know, any movie that's publicly released in like the theater, you're usually going to be able to find the budget here nor there. Oh, well don't worry about mute. That was never released. <laughs> <in theaters. laughs> it was released on February 23rd, 2018. You didn't even have to leave your home. You could just wake up in the morning, fire up your gaming console, your smart TV, your laptop, your phone. Cause that's where we are now. And uh, you could turn on mute directed by Duncan Jones of moon and um, source code fame. Written by Duncan Jones and Michael Robert Johnson, who I'm not familiar with. Are they a regular pair? I don't think. I thought that Duncan Jones worked alone. So this, this is the first. That means that you know most people would blame mute on this new guy. Yes. So again, being at 20, percent it is not highly regarded. So we will be making a case for its positive merit, starring Alexander Skarsgård, Paul Rudd, and Justin Thoreau, which it <laughs> took me. Took me quite a while to accept that that was actually Justin Thoreau uh, in his Tom Petty cosplay. He was uh, Alex, Alex. Alex was convinced that it was uh, Sam Rockwell. He kept insisting that it was Sam Rockwell. I was like, Alex, I've seen the movie before. It's not Sam Rockwell. I, okay, I was insisting. It's not Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell is in the movie for sure. Yeah, I was insisting that when he still had his smock on, and you could only see his eyes and his hairline. But I learned. Um, as we do from time to time here on The Contrarians, well, first and foremost, before we get into the breakdown uh, here in Contrarians Corner, where we make our case of argument, uh, if you want to know how we really feel about the movie, uh, all three of us stick around for the second half, and uh, we'll be sure to go into that in real talk. But you probably already know how Dan feels, because he's pretty vocal about it every time it comes up. I, I, I tweeted right before we started recording my feelings on this movie. So, <laughs> uh, so Julio... 
Yeah, meaning. lots of uh, green splotches. Like yeah. I said, not as many as we usually get because it wasn't a super full reviewed movie, but still plenty. You're telling me the Paul Rudd sci-fi thriller didn't have him turning out in droves? I think people just didn't know what to make of it. They couldn't even write a review. Therefore, didn't qualify for Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> to be fair, I don't think anyone who made this movie knew what to make of it. <laughs> uh, so... I got four quotes from the Run Tomatoes website, starting with Kevin Mayer from Times UK, who says, As a production project, it was, apparently, stuck in development hell for more than a decade. Sometimes projects are stuck in development hell for a reason. Well, that sets us off. Yeah. Next, Valerie Calfrin from Film Racket says, Something in this material clearly spoke to Duncan Jones, but whatever that was is lost in translation. Next, Akil Aurora from Gadgets360 says, But every time a writer-director with the name recognition of Jones delivers a work of this level, it only serves to prove those risk-averse studio executives right. I figure you'd like that, Alex, because you're always craving original content, and we just got it. And then critics turned on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least it was a Netflix original, not something they released in the theater that tanked. It's not a Netflix remake. (laughs) Uh, And finally, Kyle Smith from National Review says, Netflix, being new to the game and eager to build relationships, is awfully indulgent with filmmakers. But a studio president would have told Jones to throw this half-baked script back in the oven. I thought when it started with Netflix, it was going to be Netflix, more like sucks flicks. (laughs) I mean, that, that is the state of Rotten Tomatoes critics at this point. It's just like, ah, let me find like the, the eight best words that go together that sound like a zinger. <laughs> yeah, it, they, there's always, I always look for the puns. In this one, I couldn't find a single like, mute, if only. <laughs> <laughs> see, see the one, the one that ended with Lost in Translation, I was like, oh, uh, they, they said something about speaking to Justin, uh, just, uh, what the fuck is his name? Uh, Skarsgård? Duncan Jones. Oh, Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones. <laughs> like, it, not, like, the script speaking to him, I'm like, oh, here we go, a mute pun, but they, they didn't do it. <laughs> Drop the ball. All right, so as we do from time to time here on The Contrarians, when we kick off Contrarians Corner, uh, if I'm feeling myself particularly... Uh, intertwined or confused by a flummoxed flummoxed thank you that's a good five dollar word we turn to our friends at wikipedia to uh, help us kick off (laughs) with a a paragraph plot synopsis just to kind of dip our toes into this so a childhood accident leaves leo mute uh, and his devout amish mother refuses surgery as an adult in 2035 he works as a bartender at a berlin strip club owned by mask maxim and dates a cocktail waitress, uh, Nadira. I think that's how we settled on it. Sounds close yep. enough. She confides in her friend Luba that she has not told Leo about her past or her desperate need for money. After Stuart, a rowdy customer, sexually harasses Nadira, Leo assaults him. Nadira talks Leo down by telling him that she needs to keep her job. So that takes us <laughs> maybe three minutes into the movie. <laughs> It's It comes at you fast and furious. So I guess before we even start with this thing, I I, I don't know how familiar or how comfortable you guys are with the world of uh, just noir filmmaking and neo-noir. And I guess in this case, it's like neo, neo, neo-noir. I, I personally, I find myself always struggling uh, with, the, with that genre. Uh, Maltese Falcon, uh, even something as recent as uh, that... PTA movie with uh, Hooking Phoenix, uh, where he plays a detective. You know, basically, anytime that there's like a, w- one of those movies where there's like this guy who 
may or may not be a detective, but he's trying to solve a mystery and he meets a bunch of random characters, very quirky and inherent vice. Right. Sorry, inherent vice. Thank me. you. Uh, takes us on a tour of the underbelly of whatever city uh, the story is taking place in, and all the stuff. I always have trouble really connecting with it. Uh, I, I think because my brain is always the way I'm wired is I'm always trying to follow the plot. And with noir, it really the plot is kind of like an excuse. It really it's almost counterproductive to try to figure out the plot mm-hmm. because it ends up frustrating yeah. you. You end up punching all the plot holes in before they even show up. Uh, so it's always very rewarding when you find a noir that works for someone like me. When there's just enough plot to keep me happy, just enough hand-holding to not frustrate me, and where the characters are just so interesting that I can just relax and let the movie take me wherever. you know, And, and recognizing the tropes. So here, of course, Alexander Skarsgård, he's not a detective. No. But he's solving a mystery. He's a crazy bartender, as many people say. He's a, a, an imposing crazy bartender. He's not what you expect. He's not Humphrey Bogart. He's not Joaquin Phoenix. He's like this hulking figure uh, that can't talk, but has such vulnerability uh, in, in his performance that you really you can't he's, help but just follow him wherever he'll Cary take Grant. you. Uh, so I did appreciate... You know, paying homage. I mean, clearly, this was just Blade Runner with better cameras. I mean, and, <laughs> better actor too. And neon lights, and we don't break the tradition of if the movie's based in the future, it's always nighttime. And until the end, there's no daylight. So you know, you got to appreciate the little things like that. And also, right off the bat, something I appreciated: we don't do enough in modern pop culture to vilify the Amish. And I think this movie they're, does. It. They've kind of been left off the hook. And I don't understand why they're never going to find out about it. Uh, and here, the entire movie could have been avoided if his mom would just had let him get surgery when he was a little boy. Or if he was at least more more familiar with technology, right? That's uh, yeah. I, I was. This is my second time watching the movie. And I don't know how many times you've seen it, Ale- uh, uh, Dan. Uh, no, this, was- is, this is my second time. You know, I was so blown away my first time just, just marveling at this movie. You got to give it time. I had to give it so much time. Like, it, it's it's been a year and a half since I first watched this movie. <laughs> and, you know, coming back to it, it made me appreciate more aspects of it than uh, than I actually originally thought. Well, it's one of those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, need the, you have the layers. Yeah, and, and like, like you were saying with the technology, it's so interesting watching someone come at technology with like this childlike ineptitude and then slowly learn how to use it throughout a movie. It, it's, it, you know, for most people that would seem infuriating, but for me, that, that worked out pretty well. Uh, I, I really like watching him struggle with how to use a phone. Uh, in 2035. Well, it's we're so far removed from that these days that you know children just come out of the womb with a smartphone. So it's it's just so refreshing to see somebody that was looking at it as if it was something completely new. We're just so jaded these days that the most amazing technology doesn't really do anything for us. Yeah. The the literal bulk of customer facing companies now basically all their processes operate under the assumption that you have the internet and a smartphone. And this dude like a John Connor for a new generation. I'm off the grid. I'm not doing any of this bullshit. You got to respect it. You got to respect it. But you also, uh, the movie ultimately is a criticism of that sort of refusal to to just move on with the world, right? You can only, yeah. you can only hold off assimilating for so long before, uh, before it really hurts your life. It's like Dan was saying, that, like you were saying, like how much 
of this entire movie could have been avoided if he was just tech savvy and if he could talk. Well, I want to point out, I want to go back to something you were saying, Julio, about like kids being born uh, with a smartphone in their hand. Uh, I'm actually planning on having four children <laughs> so that way I can take those smartphones and use them for myself. <laughs> uh, so going from you know, futuristic aspects that, and also Amish aspects that are not relatable because fucking get a TV, uh, you know, something that <laughs> I think is relatable to everyone is going through a breakup and, you know, kind of going after the summation that brought us up to this point, uh, Nadira kind of tries to break up with Leo, uh, our, our main character, Alexander Skarsgård. And, um, at least it seems like that she's giving him sort yeah. of the talk and he just refuses to accept it. He he finds every way out that he can from it to the point where it's just like, no, I'm not letting you do this. Yeah, I feel there's a like a, an episode of Friends or something that's very similar. Like, no, I'm not letting you break up with me. Yeah, no, I've been in a similar situation where you know some girls like I don't deserve you and I'm trying to leave you and I'm just like I'm actually telling her I, I'm able to use my words so I'm able to actually like make her stay around. Uh, unfortunately for for Leo, he he doesn't have that ability. He has to like sign at her, and all she has to do is turn away from him, and you know it's it's deafening silence. He he definitely needs to overcompensate just because he can't talk, because you know he'll sculpt this gigantic. I was about to say thing. that's what kicks in here is she's won back by the powers of the Amish, what his <laughs> uncle Hezekiah taught him when he was a young lad of how to make a bed. It's. It's not even like a base. Is it his garage that he's working this in? It's it's his workshop. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's it's some abandoned like sh- storefront that he turned into a garage somehow. Like I, I don't know how some Amish bartender has enough money to buy a storefront then and then had like all this fucking wood in this in this storefront. But he mean, hey, that's the world we live in. That's the world he lives in. So you know. You just got to take it and run with it. In Apparently, future, currency works a lot different 15 years from now. <laughs> in the future, everybody gets a little garage slash workshop. That's just part of your deal if you're living in uh, Germany. Because this whole movie takes place in Germany, which I also loved. Because, you know, you don't really get many movies set in Germany mm-hmm. for the duration. No. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's like Germany becomes like a neon light filled. Fuck. What, what are those? Just. Stacks on stacks on stacks of residents in Brazil called. I'm blanking. Jengas? Huh? <laughs> Jengas? The Flavella? Favela, yeah, thank you. Dan's Dan's gone on my same train of thought there. <laughs> anyway, uh he's he tries to make her this bed. She says, No, you know, I have some things to tell you. We can't do this. So naturally they this leads one thing to another. They go up and uh take each other to bed. He wakes up. Is it middle of the night? Yeah, it's still dark. Yeah. Because there's no daylight until the end of the movie. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And you know, there's just so there's just so much smog in the city, you know, that and not to get into too much spoilers here with the movie, but at the at the very end they're out in the wilderness sort of. There's like trees and stuff, so at least it makes sense as to why there's daylight there, but in the city it's just too polluted and too dark for for any sunlight to ever escape through. It's a logical conclusion of where we're headed. It's just Duncan Jones just extrapolated. That's actually what Houston looks like currently. <laughs> <laughs> Lost all of our listeners in Houston with that one line. Or just like got nods of, yep, you're right. <laughs> the guy at his cubicle yeah, at work yeah. just, you know, typing in data entry shit and just, yep, yep, he's got it. Uh, Why did you just describe my life? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's me too, brother. Um Okay, wakes up. Nadira's gone. At this point, mentally, Leo doesn't have a a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. So he's just worse for wear, not knowing where to go, what to do. Uh, enter in our second. 
He's the, basically a co-lead. I was about to say, they, this would have been righteous kill, Pacino and De Niro getting the co-billing <laughs> here. Paul Rudd, who plays Cactus, a.k.a. is it Bill? He has Bill. some really... Is yeah. he Cactus Bill yeah. or Bill Cactus? No, it, it's Cactus Bill, and I had a really hard time remembering his character name because I'm like, oh, it's Cactus Jack, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, naturally, that's the exact same thing I thought of, too. <laughs> here nor there, what is here is that the movie Mute has the balls to make Paul Rudd a dirty, just greasy, white trash character, which up until this point, Paul Rudd's always got to be the affable best friend or the, you know, the really has it all going for him bachelor. Mm -hmm. The eternally young uh, protagonist that you can identify with. This is Paul Rudd like you've never seen him before. Oh, yeah. Every movie Paul Rudd's in up until this point, you want to be Paul Rudd. But now this is a new like, no, oh. Now you, you, you're you scared of Paul Rudd. Stay 50 feet away from me, Paul Rudd. It's, and it's not just a mustache, which already alone, it's it's quite the achievement. Uh, but no, he, he has some swagger. He's, he's like a mob doctor. He's taking care of uh, yeah. all, the, all the criminals that populate this this club. And he's ready to go. He's waiting for his papers to come through. The, I guess these guys are... He's working for them with the because they promise him that they're gonna sort out his his passport. So and yeah, if I can papers. cut yeah. in real quick there, um, it's never explained, but something has gone on in America, like with a war or something like that. And uh, Dan, I know you kind of referenced it early uh, with Sam Rockwell having an appearance in the movie. Yes. Uh, explain to us that particular just really weird like CNN scene with like <laughs> multiple Sam Rockwells. I, oh, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Weird. I thought it was you know brave and uh, inspiring. Duncan Jones trying to create uh, the Duncan Jones averse, where you know he he <laughs> combines all of his movies into this one wonderful universe. You know, I was I was expecting orcs from World of Warcraft to show up in, in this too. But unfortunately, we didn't get that. Must not have gotten the rights. Hey, whatever. You know, you, you can't blame the guy for that. But uh, th that's a direct reference to Moon, everybody. Uh, if, you, if you've if you seen the 2009 Duncan Jones masterpiece, Moon, uh, Sam Rockwell's character turn, fi finds out that, spoilers, he's a clone. And so all the clones are fighting for Sam Rockwell rights. Because, you know, we need Sam Rockwell rights. It's it's awesome that he kind of throws so, uh, like these references to Moon just kind of, you know, willy-nilly. Just kind of like, hey. I'm just painting the background. The quote is, it's the spiritual sequel to Moon. <laughs> uh, uh, but then he does not do the same for Source Code unless we miss it. And we could have missed it because there's so much going well, on Source in Source Code movie, takes place they... in America. Maybe that's what's going on in America is, is whatever happened with Source Code. Jesus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mind is being blown right now. <laughs> Jay Gyllenhaal taking over the entirety of the uh, of North America. What's her name? Megan Monaghan? Is that the, the Michelle. one? Michelle Monaghan. Michelle yeah. Monaghan, yeah. She she's the vice president in this universe. <laughs> uh, I want to go back to Paul Rudd as as the bad guy real quick because mm -hmm. you know uh, it's playing against type. Like you guys were saying, like he's always so charming, so lovable. You you want to hug him. You want to give him a hug. Here, like because he's so mean and so awful to people, you're you're just like, oh, what a brave choice, Duncan Jones, like to to get Paul Rudd, the the perennial nice guy, to be your villain in this movie. You know, and to get the most out of it, it just shows how good of a director Duncan Jones truly, truly is. And um, kind of tying that up, the the whole tie-in with the Moon and Sam Rockwell, and uh, apparently Jake Gyllenhaal and Michelle Monaghan are <laughs> part of this too. Now, um, Paul Rudd's character is an American that is planted in Germany that went AWOL from the U.S. military, right? And he's essentially. We find pretty quickly he's there to do kind of um, ad hoc work or, you know, 
under the table payments for medical procedures and uh, strictly speaking, not legal things because he's trying to get documentation to get back to the United States. Like I, he's trying to get the uh, the Dark Knight Rises, the clean slate. He, <laughs> right. just, he just needs that yeah. USB to head back. He just needs to get to that cafe with uh, Catwoman. <laughs> Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. Thank you. <laughs> so the two characters, Paul Rudd, Bill and Leo intersect. Just because he he's familiar with them from the bar, correct? They run right. into each he other like frequents the bar because it's the, the same bar that the mobsters use. Um, but there's also just going back a little bit about the the what happened in America, which of course we don't know. In but that applies to a lot of this universe, the Duncan verse, the Duncan Jones verse. It yeah. reminds me a little bit the of DJ. A, uh, <laughs> never mind the DJ verse. <laughs> I fucked it up. Move uh, on. <laughs> it reminded me a little bit of a Minority Report. I remember hearing how like Spielberg wanted to do this thing where he would just. Uh, come up with all these crazy ideas for the future, but then not really focus on them, just kind of have them running in the background while the mystery of Minority Report was happening. And here's kind of like the same thing. It's very obvious that Duncan Jones has created this entire world and there's a lot of stuff going on. And I am pretty sure if you go through his trash, like you can see like notes and notes, like handwritten <laughs> notes of like everything that's happening, committed to memory by now. But that's he. he's wise enough not to let the movie derailed by all, by all this. He's just having that as the background and who knows how many movies he has in him that are set in this world and they're going to sort of casually reference each other the way that, you know, we get the moon reference here. You don't get enough of that. A, a lived-in world, even though there's only like, what, three movies so far set in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it just, you know, that's, that's what you call them a tours, you know, because they just, they bring everything together. The Every character smokes... The candy apple red cigarettes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Leo ends up getting in another fight. The people that came and harassed Nadira show back up at the bar, talk some shit. He gets in a fight with them. He gets fired from his job. So at this point, he's got no job, no girl. And it strikes me as this was probably the only relationship he'd ever been in with the way he reacts to this. So his main focus now becomes tracking down Nadira and figuring out what the hell happened. Yeah, so now we're finally on the detective story. Because uh, he breaks out the smartphone and tries to use it. <laughs> it was gifted to him by Nadira. Um, he said he wasn't going to use or excuse me, he motioned that he wasn't going to use it. <laughs> but she yeah, you remember that. stated, <laughs> she stated uh, essentially it would make communication a lot easier. So he breaks it out and it's like um, Tom Hanks trying to make fire and cast away. He, has, <laughs> he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just yeah. trying really hard. Well, it, and it's a nice throwback to uh, to like 2004 times because it looks like a fucking sidekick that he mm -hmm. th that he has for some reason. I don't know where the hell she found that, but I mean, God bless her. Alexander Skarsgård trying to operate an N gauge on a, <laughs> in his high rise apartment. She was scouring eBay or the equivalent of eBay in the future just to find something that was low tech enough that he could it could help as an entry point. It would have been great if he just kept pressing it and just launched Snake over and over again and he's trying to navigate <laughs> through the game safe. Minesweeper. There you go. Uh, so he's on the hunt. Meanwhile, uh, we get some more development of Paul Rudd's character, Bill. Uh, he he works for uh, the club owner, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yes. Uh, Mas uh, Maxim. Maxim, thank you. And these Russian goons will, or excuse me, German goons will bring people to his loft, uh, his home, whenever necessary for surgery. We get a graphic shot of him operating on someone's leg. All of this leads into the reveal of his second. Uh, I have in my notes here a Wiley Justin Thoreau appears 
as Duck. <laughs> I don't even know if he has a secondary name. Not to, not to repeat myself, but Justin Thoreau, like you've never seen him before. No. He's got the, the Liam Gallagher glasses with the Liam Gallagher haircut. And uh, <laughs> I... I Yes, I've, I'm used to like high and tight, crew cut, really good looking Justin Thoreau. This immediately you get an uneasy feeling seeing his aesthetic. Yeah, it, it's mm. uh, even before the big revelations come about his character, you can already feel this lease coming off of him. Uh, it, it's pretty unsettling. So now you have three actors doing top of their game work, right? You oh, have Skarsgård. Playing, you know, this this person that can't talk. It's all emotion in his face. You have Paul Rudd playing against character, being a, a badass, a dangerous person. And now you have Justin Theroux, the class act that he usually is, now playing like his least ball. Uh, so that's what I was saying earlier that I I just, that's what I need to get through the plot. I don't really need to focus so much on the plot when I have three characters, three actors at the top of their game doing this kind of stuff. Uh, it's just entertaining enough to just, I'll follow them wherever... There you go. Dan, with Justin Thoreau, uh, we talked about breaking typecasting with Paul Rudd. I think it's fair to say, too, they not to go too spoiler heavy, but they definitely uh, they asked more of him than we're used to with uh, <laughs> Mr. Aniston. Oh, I mean, I mean, absolutely. You know, when uh, when you date the uh, the older women, sometimes you, you want to rebel and uh, go against that. And... <laughs> Good you Lord. Know, Justin Thoreau's character in this, I, I did make note of. Uh, I'm I'm happy that 15 years from now it'll be once again culturally and uh, societally appropriate to just call everyone babe. I, I went through a, a phase of that again, myself 10 years ago. Considering how his character ends up, maybe maybe he's the only one that's saying babe. So I wouldn't I wouldn't claim victory yet, Alex. <laughs> Let's true. see how this pans out. Uh, I maybe. Mean, <laughs> After everyone watches this movie and sees Justin Thoreau's performance, I wouldn't be surprised to hear "babe" after every sentence uh, going forward in in our culture. You know, uh, I, I agree with Alex. This might be culturally pervasive. Because truth be told, up until like the last five minutes of the movie, everything he does is kind of forgiven. It's just like, <laughs> all right, boys will be boys. Uh, we get a big chase scene. I have that in my notes. What spurs this on? Uh, he's following the the club owner Nikki, uh, the guy who runs the uh, the the whorehouse, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So he visits a local bathhouse and yes. Luba, the um, oh yeah, that's right, male bartender friend of uh, Nadira. Basically, uh, Leo's not wanting to accept that his girlfriend was a prostitute, but it's becoming more and more like uh, obvious that that was the case. And yeah, he steals a car to try to track down this Nikki Simsek character who basically ran this whorehouse, for lack of a better term. Yes. Right. They may be called Best Buy in the future. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But all that leads into uh, Dominic Monaghan, Monaghan, excuse me, appearing as a geisha who's been wearing his makeup for like four days. Charlie from (laughs) Lost, just showing up for this one scene. Yeah, and Pippin. I can't believe it. See, we all have different different reference points for this guy. Because to me, he's Charlie from Lost. When we're watching, Alex is like, hey, this is the guy from X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you go to Lord of the Rings, of course. Well, I just went to Lord of the Rings after Lost. Like, yes, I'm like, oh, look, it's Charlie, everybody. I mean, Dominic Monaghan is, is a, a man with a very extrapolating filmography. 
so at this point, too, things were becoming a bit entwined, uh, much like a strand of DNA. So we go back to Wikipedia to kind of help bring us back to, <laughs> up to speed. Nadira's address leads Leo to Oswald, played by Dominic Monaghan. Uh, when Leo expresses interest in a picture of Nadira, Oswald assumes Leo works for Maxim's uh, underling, Nikki Simsek, who is skimming money from Maxim's prostitutes. Leo meets with Simsek, who is babysitting Josie. Excuse me, Josie is Paul Rudd's daughter. That's yes. another thing. Paul Rudd is this dirtbag, but there's also this human quality they add to him. It's like, oh, man, he's really shitty, but he's got this daughter that he's trying to support. It, yeah, it's Who's the real asshole? <laughs> right. He's He has a daughter that he loves, that he cares for. And he's also, all things considered, he's a pretty good friend to uh, to Duck. Mm-hmm. To oh, yeah. Thoreau. So he's a guy, but in all honesty, we don't really know how bad he is until the end of the movie. You know, we know he's a bad dude, but we're kind of like on his side because the people around him are even worse. Yeah. We're like, okay, he's a guy that's doing unsavory things, but he's doing them for his uh, daughter and for his friend. So that's sort of forgivable in our mind. It's not until much later that we find out how bad it is. It's because um, Bill is so entwined with this seedy underbelly and working for Maxim that, you know, he has someone like Simsek watching his daughter. Leo ends up befriending Josie. I think they're both doing doodles. and um, Of bears. Took a bun- yes. Yeah, there's a... Papa Bear and Baby Bear. And he took a bunch of money from Oswald and just throws it all at Simsek, as Wikipedia puts it. Leo befriends Josie and leaves the money from Oswald and a note incriminating Simsek in front of Maxim's henchmen, who are like, one's a robot and... (laughs) None of them have pupils. No. They look like the natural progression of like Reptile, Scorpion, and (laughs) Sub-Zero when they try to make them actually look like humans. Like like half of the bottom half of their faces are all painted black for some reason. Uh, You don't get much about these guys. You just know that they're henchmen of Maxim and that's about it. That's like, that's Duncan Jones just painting them broad strokes. We'll get to these guys five movies from now. And truth be told, if there's something I love about futuristic movies, it's just things being presented with no explanation. Exactly. It's just like, well, well, that's just how it happens now, I guess. It's the future. Following this, we eventually lead into our best actor, if not best picture, Oscar clip as uh, Alexander Skarsgård to free his mind from everything that's going on is at the local Y swimming laps. And he can't speak, but all the frustration and just strife of everything is piled up on him. And he just submerges his head below water and tries to the best of his ability to scream underwater. This is also uh, a very popular meme slash GIF. Actually, Dan used it very recently it, when he was is talking it, about... Is it popular or is it just me who uses it? Because I'm the only one who's seen this movie up until now. I I, I knew of it. I don't know that I've ever used it, but it's, it's very appropriate. It's a very uh, powerful way of expressing frustration. Oh, yeah. Th- that's how I'm using the GIF. I'm using it, like, one, to, like, show my frustration with things, but also to, to show the power of that of that swimming pool scene and, you know, the the raw emotion coming off of Alexander Skarsgård in that, in that scene. Well, it's also, like, a really nice bit of setup because, uh, you know, and you see it also happen earlier in the movie when he uh, takes a deep breath and drinks a whole glass of water and then exhales. It, it's all this stuff that comes to play later in the movie, uh, in the climax. Yeah, it yeah. seems like with the the water thing, he's ever since his accident as a child, he's just been training himself to ensure that he never drowns again. I don't know what he's been doing to protect his throat, but he's definitely not going <laughs> to drown again. He ends up finding Luba again, who I guess by night 
is a male prostitute and by even later night is a female prostitute. Yeah. yeah. He, he puts boobs on. Shows up yeah. looking like Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. I know. So, I saw that and I was like, oh, I'm sexually confused now. <laughs> <laughs> even more so with Jessica Rabbit than with Luba. <laughs> but Luba explains he was basically posing as Nadira. Right. Because when, uh, so when, when Alexander Scarter was in, uh, in the, Charlie from Lost's apartment. There's like a whole wall that's wallpaper with pictures of, I guess, all the hookers that have passed by. And one of them is the picture of, it looks like Nadira. It mm-hmm. has the name Nadira on it. And, you know, the silhouette kind of looks like it could be her, which seems to confirm that, oh, wow, yeah, she was hooking for this guy uh, yeah. on the side. But then here is like the big reveal is that that's not her in the picture. It's, uh, what's his name? Motu? Lu. Luba. Luba. Yeah, Motu. Yeah, exactly. Motu. Nailed it. <laughs> it's Luba uh, dressed as a woman pretending to be Nadira so that Nadira would get paid because she needed the money. Who knows for what right now? Nobody knows. But So it turns out that she was not a hooker. She had a friend that was prostituting himself for her because I guess he has a crush on her uh, as well. Just basically used her picture for the thumbnail of his OnlyFans account. And then when you subscribe, <laughs> you get something a little bit different. Leo's taking this breakup hard. So he gets all this information from Luba. And then because of the caller ID on the refrigerator, he's able to track down, uh, which really isn't that far off. I know some modern refrigerators have a monitor on it that's synced to like smartphones. Yeah, yeah, we're we're at smart refrigerators now. So, I mean, this makes perfect logical sense. You're getting a snack and you're calling your mom. It just, it happens. So he finds Nadira's mom's phone number, writes it down. And then goes to the book depository and gets, you know, every Berlin phone book and just starts from the beginning. So he goes old school, which is only something that only like an Amish would have been able to do in this day and age, right? Like anybody in the year, is it 2035? He's the only one that knows how to use the, use the Dewey <laughs> Decimal System at this point. Right. Yeah. Nobody else would have been able to crack that code. Yeah. Uh, I want to I actually like jump back a little bit because we're missing the most important part of this Nadira uh, reveal that Luba is actually Nadira in this case. But... Uh, Alexander Skarsgård goes up to this uh, fly meal thing where uh, basically you punch in like a phone number and order something, and this this meal will fly itself over to uh, over to where that phone is. Uh, and and he uh, walks by this guy who is playing a phone game, and uh, the guy helps him order the food because it requires you to speak into it, and so the guy does it. But then like the shot like. We're, Skarsgård's done with the scene, but we hang on this shot because, you know, the guy <laughs> the guy who is playing the phone game, I, I've grown to love him in the 45 seconds he was on screen where uh, he did nothing but play a phone game and uh, help an, a, a poor idiot Amish man uh, work a, a piece of technology. So, I mean, we have to spend time on him uh, to see what he does after uh, Skarsgård leaves. Uh, we have to spend like a good 10 seconds on him. Because, you know, I, I want to see him go back to playing that game. I want to see what he does next. Fuck you want to make sure he's I, okay. I don't even care what Skarsgård's doing. I want to know what this guy's doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's very relatable because, I mean, yes, he's playing in some sort of like virtual reality. But it's really the equivalent of today when you yeah. just have somebody on their phone. And yeah. They're just like barely paying attention, but they are paying attention enough that they can help you out. And it also shows like perfectly how out of place uh, Alexander Skarsgård is here. You know, it's like he can't order drone delivery because he can't talk <laughs> yeah the world is not outfitted for him it's uh how do you speak in a loud world <laughs> uh 
when he was looking at the phone books, though, I immediately thought of the Simpsons. Like it should have just showed him scouring through the phone books over and over again. And like, you know, him on the phone He's like, or I guess texting or whatnot. And been like, all right. I had reached out to Arison and Zakowski. They're the two biggest gossips in town. I'll find her mom one way or the other. <laughs> so he eventually does track down in Berlin after going through God only knows how many phone numbers. It's, it's I don't know how he didn't drive himself just absolutely insane trying to find that. He has nothing left. I mean, he didn't have technology to begin with. So once you take the girlfriend out <laughs> and and, you, and he loses his job. What else is he going to do but scour phone books? Yeah, he's a very bored man. <laughs> yep. So he finds Indira's mom. Uh, to make matters even more difficult, she doesn't speak a language he understands. So she basically has to mime the situation. She's like basically just doing the rockabye baby motion. And it's through her exposition of the situation that we find out uh, Nadira had a kid with Paul Rudd. Right. We find out that Josie is Nadira's baby. She recognizes her... Uh... From one of the pictures. Oh, because that's the other big mystery that's been going on. Somebody has been texting clues, pictures to... Uh, There's so much going on, it's hard to keep phone. focused. And one of those pictures was Paul Rudd and and the little girl. And so when the mom sees that, when Adira's mom sees that, she recognizes her, her uh, granddaughter. Yeah. And flips out. And then we get, I, I guess this is when we get like the flashback of Paul Rudd doing the deed. We get like a montage of, yeah, Paul Rudd. Like him waiting outside the building and sneaking in, roofing both uh, Alexander Skarsgård and Adira, mm -hmm. waiting until they're done having sex. <laughs> One of my, it, it, like it shows a shot of him not watching, but just right outside the door, listening, listening. intently. Listening. He's only listening to her. Cause... It also has one of my favorite dramatic tropes in movies where someone <laughs> puts the, the narcotic in a syringe and then uses a syringe to shoot it into like a glass of tea or coffee. It's well, you, you can't just pour it in there. You got to. No, Duncan Jones knows that. Duncan Jones knows like, hey, you know, when you're doing a noir, a neo, 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 neo noir, you have to, you know, you have to stick by those tropes that people know. You don't want to confuse them too much. You know, there's just it's such a dense plot. You got to keep it simple for the audience. It has to be a nice mix of the old school stuff and mm -hmm. the new stuff. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of dense, we already talked about Paul Rudd's mustache, right? Well, I mean, I mentioned it in the intro. That that alone would be a... That took up a lot of my concentration was trying to figure out <laughs> if that was real or a prop. I hope it's real. It had I to be. I hope it's real, too. I would be devastated if He's that was He's had roles real. before where he grew full beard, so he can grow it. Like, a, a person like myself could not grow something like that, but I've seen Paul Rudd with a full beard, so... It looked heavy. I mean, I'm sure it informed his acting to just have this thing pulling down on your face every day. <laughs> he had the jowls going on, though. <laughs> yeah. He had the 2007 Jonah Hill as opposed to the 2012 <laughs> Jonah Hill. Uh, Paul Rudd and Adira had a kid together. Have that in my notes. So, so he's the one that kidnapped Next note, her. Paul Rudd, bad guy is my next note. <laughs> Real bad guy. Yes. So if it's not exactly here, the situation is we do find out that Paul Rudd went, uh, drugged Nadira and Leo, and then took her. We, we don't yet know what he did with her, but he kidnapped her. Just put her in a van. That's, that's all we know. So... At this point, Skarsgård knows that Paul Rudd's the one to get. Meanwhile, Bill, through happenstance, finds out that Duck... I don't want to say pedophile, because we don't confirm that he actually... You don't want to unfairly accuse someone. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the dude just set up security cameras. He's being extra thorough. That's all it is. He's being extra thorough? He, uh... <laughs> boo. <laughs> 
He finds incriminating evidence on uh, Justin Thoreau's computer of um, child pornography. That's the phraseology I was looking for. <laughs> I mean, so it doesn't help that Justin Thoreau has has shown an interest on on the younger ladies throughout the entire movie. So when it's happening, you know, you're watching the movie, you're like, oh, he's one of those guys. He's just like cracking jokes. And then, but then it gets to the point where he's, he's Ryan Reynolds in Adventureland. <laughs> Uh, then it gets to the point where also Ryan Reynolds in waiting, <laughs> yes. like Ryan Reynolds <laughs> in Green Lantern. Uh, so they get to the point where Paul Rudd stumbles across this this network of cameras he has on, I guess, the dressing room that he has for his patients, for his underage patients, mm-hmm. and he actually sees footage of a little girl like taking her clothes off. So now it's just like kind of like a little harder to defend Justin Thoreau. A little. <laughs> You know, if you want to play devil's advocate, like you were saying, it's like, yeah, we didn't see him do anything. But at this point. So this is a complete side tangent as uh, a complete sidebar as happens in life. Paul Rudd just goes and tells him, look, I found out what you did. And if you ever touch my daughter again, I'll I'll kill you. I'll break your arms. All this shit. And Oscar the, clip, would you say, for the best for act, the best supporting actor? Oh, he, oh, absolutely. Because he he pushes him up against the wall and. You know, just kind of cuts this huge promo on him, and then it shows his level of psychosis in that house quickly switches gears when he gets a phone call. Because that is one thing that's not completely explained, but if you you know if you're quick enough to keep up with the movie, uh, I guess phones are embedded into our ears 15 yeah, yeah, years yeah. from now. So he gets a call stating that his documents are ready for him. So basically, he can go back to the United States. So to celebrate, they go to, I guess, the future German equivalent of TGI Fridays. <laughs> I think that it shows, you know, it would be really easy to turn this into a black and white situation where, you know, oh, well, we used to be friends. Then I found out that you're a perv that likes little girls and now we're not friends anymore. But Duncan Jones pushes like a little deeper and now it's like, well, we're still friends and I care about your well-being and I want to help you get over this. So poor Rudd looks past it and he's like, listen, man, I got my papers, so I'm going to give you my house and you can stop treating children altogether so you're not a menace and you're not tempted. Mm-hmm. And instead you can treat mobsters now, which is kind of like a step up. Being a mob doctor is a step up from being a pedophile. In most circles, that's my understanding. <laughs> uh, but during all this, they kind of get into a kerfuffle after a heavy night of drinking. And um, he... Again, kind of dresses him down after he gets into an altercation with, like, the local security at the mall. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't uh, Duck reveal that he's been just fucking with Leo and texting him clues and whatnot? Yeah, he's the one that's been texting. It's such a mindfuck of a reveal because it really makes you question everything that has happened before and everything that's going to happen going forward. Because the movie, wisely, never makes it clear if... Doug was really doing it just because, you know, he's an idiot and he thought that Alexander Skarsgård was so dumb that he would never be able to follow the clues and figure out what happened. Or if he was really doing it because deep down he wanted uh, uh, Paul Rudd to get caught. So the way that he acts towards the end, you know, it seems to lean one way, but I think you could make the case for the other way, you know, if you tried. And uh, Paul Rudd's vernacular in this scene, too, just to solidify that he's the bad guy, is just dropping all sorts of... Uh, profane language. Yeah. With big-ass knife. Yeah. We're officially in the third act of the yeah, movie. Yes. Alexander Skarsgård goes to his workshop. Oh, yeah. This is his... Um, 
old boy scene. <laughs> Skarsgård shows up at the club because he's looking for uh, Bill, Paul Rudd, and he goes there with his hammer, a.k.a. bedpost. His bow staff. And just, his, his, you know. his Amish bedpost, you know, which grants him uh, plus 18 strength. Apparently. No kidding. The joke with my friend was always the... When things like this happen in a movie, you said they were going Loomis on him because in part five, Halloween, when he gets that two by four and just keeps hitting Michael over and over again, <laughs> die, die. And so he's just cutting through this club, just beating people down. And then somewhere along the way, he loses his bedpost. And then like a guy who doesn't even try to impose on him is just like, Leo, what are you doing here? He takes like this ceramic mannequin and just bashes him <laughs> over the face with it. I think that was uh, that was Maxim, right? Like he that knocks- was Maxim. Yeah, that was yeah, Maxim. Yeah. He, he had yes. his Bluetooth headphones on as he had all all movie, and he has no idea what's going on because he he hasn't been paying attention. Uh, yeah, and he yeah he just said what hello, and he takes uh, Paul Rudd's papers. Yeah, the whole point of this is Paul Rudd's en route to the club, uh, the club as the kids say, to pick up his documentation. Skarsgård takes it because he ha- it has the address on it, so now he knows where to go. Paul Rudd gets there. Uh, I love that he just sees all these bodies laying around unconscious and in ruin and walks right past him, not caring, and just goes up the stairs trying to find, you know, what he's there for. He's clearly a man on a mission. Absolutely. Leo is, you know, he just wants to exact his revenge. Uh, But because he finds his package, he finds Bill's house. He goes inside, which, again, we're dealing with, like, this really heavy smog filled downtown area how far outside of town does paul rudd live he has like this lake house type setup and the house is like a it looks like a cottage that a very well-off family could afford i think the implication was that the the mobsters were paying for his house because still that has to at least be 30 to 40 miles removed from everything else i mean that's how he likes it that way uh he can raise his daughter away from the filth. Well, then why is Duck there? I, I was about to say, I think he lets, he lets Justin throw in every night. All right, let's get through this. He gets to Bill's house. He sees Semsek laying on the operating table. He frees him. Uh, he begins searching for Nadira anywhere in the home. Uh, Bill shows back up, uh, puts his daughter in her bedroom, locks the door, goes down. He's just talking shit. He picks up the bedpost. I don't know. It, he hands he hands uh, uh, Skarsgård the key. He's like, go ahead, go. Oh, yes, 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 yes. In the ultimate yeah. sleight of hand or diversion, I should say. He just goes over to this giant, uh, not even a meat locker, but it's a case that is large enough to facilitate a grown human being. He opens it. There's nothing in it. And then he just looks <laughs> slightly to his right. And then there is dead bodies right there. <laughs> this Duncan Jones just playing us like a fiddle. He's like Ryan Johnson. He's subverting your expectations. You're expecting her to be in this meat freezer, but then you just see her haphazardly thrown off into the corner. And there was just no way that Alexander Skarsgård was going to know that she was off in the corner. But then it's it's awesome because, no you know. odor. Well, she's, she's all, like, bagged and tagged. So I guess the odor was contained. Okay. But it, what I love is that when he opens the, the freezer and she's not there, then you instantly think, oh, okay, so she's alive. <laughs> but then you get the gut punch five seconds later when no, she's dead. She's okay. just not in the freezer. And this is also uh the the audio over all of this is when Duncan Jones just told Paul Rudd to do his Judd Aptow ad libbing. Cause he's like, Oh, you make this bed, can you make me a shelf? You know? <laughs> You're not saying anything. Is it does that mean no? <laughs> 
So Nadir is dead. Leo and Bill get into an altercation in which Leo kills Paul Rudd brutally. With ease. And, yeah, something I do not care to ever see again is Paul Rudd getting viciously <laughs> murdered on screen. The, the, the blood gurgling was uh, very disturbing. And it goes on for, like... Well, I think that this what is probably, feels like the length of the, of this is forty. I, I think this is slightly less painful to watch, but yes, uh, this is probably the only time you're ever going to see Paul Rudd die such a vicious death on screen. So Duncan Jones knew that he had to get the most out of it. That's actually what Paul Rudd wanted to happen to him in This Is Forty. <laughs> I've never seen a character in a movie or television hate his life so much as Paul Rudd does in that movie. So, yeah, this giant, like, hunting 007 knife that was at least, you know, nine inches long penetrated completely through Paul Rudd's neck, and he just lays there dying. Leo then carries the dead body of Nadira out uh, onto the lakeside in front of the home, and he just sits down with her. Yeah. And I thought we were done with them. I, you know, honestly. Oh no, there's like 25 minutes left in this movie. And, oh and that's yeah, the thing. this is a, a, you know, I like uh, AI, artificial intelligence. You know, the Spielberg movie, but that's a movie that everybody can point out to the fact that it basically has two endings. You know, it mm-hmm. ends and then it has like a short film <laughs> that's like another extra 15 to 20 minutes, and uh, it doesn't mean that it's, it's a bad movie, but it means that it has a problem at the end, and I think that the same applies to Mute. I like the movie. I like the ending we arrive at eventually, but I think a better ending would have been just here in the creepiest possible way, right? Uh, Skarsgård is heartbroken. He takes his dead girlfriend out. Paul Rudd is dying, slowly bleeding out. And then uh, Justin Theroux comes in and he's like, oh man, I can't really help you. It's like, I can't take you to the hospital because then they'll ask questions. But you know what? I'll take care of your daughter. Yeah. God. That was so chilling. And then he goes up in the security camera. He turns the monitor around so Paul Rudd can see it. And he goes into his daughter's room and picks her up and holds her. And If you just go like cut to black, you know, end credits there. That is just because that would be. It's like the end of the first saw for a new generation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it leaves you no comfort. Right. It would be just. I understand that Netflix and Duncan Jones and everybody involved felt that they needed a little bit of more of a picker-upper at the end. Couldn't yeah. be this bleak, but that would have made it an instant classic. And, well, and maybe well, it would have resonated more with audiences. Well, I think I think someone came along and was like, well, Duncan, you have a perv in the movie, so uh, maybe we should get even with the perv. Like, uh, maybe we, we need <laughs> the pervs comeuppance here at some point. Okay, yeah, sure, let me throw on another 15 minutes. And uh, masterful work throwing on that 15, it, 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 you know. If you have to do it, uh, you know, then at least do it well. Like, yeah, like and, and he did. Said. He nailed it. Yeah. So Duck loads up Josie in his car. He goes out and sees Leo, uh, kicks him in the head, knocks him out. He's then awoken. He says, we have some talking to do. Uh, so um, Leo awakes to a voice box being installed in the middle of his throat, right? His esophagus. Uh, I guess it's the final act of... Punishment from the duck? I think, like, the pain runs deep. We never really understood how much uh, duck cared for for Paul Rudd. Because, really, the only reason he's installed this voice box uh, in uh, Skarsgård's throat is so that he can apologize Mm -hmm. to him and to uh, Paul Rudd's daughter. The viewing audience. And for the the viewing audience. (laughs) I'm sorry I killed Paul Rudd. (laughs) 
So it's also this voice, voice box. Skarsgård's still not using it. So uh, Duck drives Leo and Josie out to God knows where. It's some bridge. I don't even. We don't even know if we're still in Germany at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's the one picture uh, Leo had of Nadira. That's where the picture was taken. And so I guess Duck just wanted to show him this place before he kills him because he's about to throw him off this bridge. Uh, Leo gets one last burst of adrenaline and inhales like we've become accustomed to him doing. Uh, I mean, they set this up perfectly. You know, you've been seeing him take those deep breaths before he's drinking that that tall glass of water. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's like he's been training for this exact moment his entire life. You know exactly what's going to happen. And you kind of get the feeling that he had always known that when the time came for him to kill a man... This is how it was going to happen. Yeah, not just, plunging a knife directly into their throat and watching them <laughs> blood gurgle to death. No. Kill, kill a real man like uh, Justin <laughs> Thoreau. So they both jump into whatever body of water they're by. It looks like a, a lake. Uh, and he drowns Justin Thoreau and gets up uh, to the water level and sees that Josie's leaning over the the rail or the, the the sidewalk, the, the ledge of the bridge is what I'm trying yeah. to say. and. Says, uh, you know, are you okay? And he's just miming, get back. And, you know, the movie's built to this moment. He's got the voice box and everything, and he's able to yell, no, it's dangerous, get back. It's it's and him finally life. embracing technology. It finally happens. Take that, Amish. <laughs> it, I mean, yeah. You know, he, he makes the leap and lands on the 21st century with both feet. And he saves a young girl's life because of it. Exactly. Yeah, so... If only he had embraced technology sooner. Yeah, and you know, we definitely see him throw away his Amishness because uh, with the last, like the last shot of the movie, he's wearing this uh, neon blue hoodie, uh, very clearly ditching his uh, yes. Amish roots and and fully embracing the 21st century of uh, obnoxious bright colored uh, wear. I really wish there was a little bit more to it, like uh, in terms of. You know, he had to just ditch those wet clothes. So I wish the hoodie said something like Capricorns do it best. And he's just sitting at the table. Uh, But yeah, he's coloring with Josie and he sees her uh, bracelet that has all the little trinkets on it. And he gives her the one he had the last one he had made for her mother. Right. Yeah. When he sees the trinkets, he realizes that every time he gave one of these trinkets to to his girlfriend, she would give it to his daughter, to her daughter. Uh, So so we kind of come full circle. And then credits roll and it says, Leo will be back in Avengers Age of Ultron. You beat me too because I was going to say <laughs> based on a true story. Oh. <laughs> and then it shows Omar Sy and uh, Francois Cluzet yeah. from <laughs> The Untouchables watching. and Just flying a kite. Yes, the, the interpretation of their story has come full circle. And, uh, and then Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart walk in and... Uh... You know, and they, they have this sheer moment of realization like, oh, you're me and I'm you. It's uh, really what should have happened is, you know, Leo will come back in uh, World of Warcraft. No, World of Warcraft was before this. So whatever yes. the next Duncan Jones movie is going to be. Uh, yeah. And I, quite frankly, as a, as a massive fan of Duncan Jones movies, I will riot in the streets. Uh, I, I will leave it a one man riot if I have to, if uh Alexander Skarsgård is not in the next Duncan Jones movie. <laughs> uh, Alex, uh, Alex was not happy when we were done with the movie, so I cannot wait to hear what he has to say during real talk. 
I kind of know what to expect from you, Dan. I get the feeling that might be the one that feels the most positive about this movie, but that's not saying much. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm not entirely sure how that's possible, but yeah, let's move this along. All right. I downloaded an episode of Netflix and Swill. Does this mean I get to watch Netflix now? No, you can't watch Netflix until you understand the phrase poop. Poop? Once you understand poop, you'll understand your place as a listener of this podcast. But what does poop mean? Uh-huh. It's actually a carefully organized code. Listen closely. People order our podcast. Oh, poop. Looks like Mr. Caleb understands poop. Here's a typical podcast listener. I wonder what they want. Well, if we remember poop, we can figure it out. I'd like to watch... Do you think they're going to watch A, an Amy Schumer comedy special, B, Gypsy, or C, a good show? One good show, please. Ah, poop, you never let us down. Now that you understand poop, I bet you think you're ready to watch Netflix. Netflix! Ha-ha! Not so fast, Eager McBeaver. You still need to finish listening to Netflix and Swill. You can find the show at netflixandswill.com or on your favorite podcast service. And now, to talk about personal hygiene. I'm Duncan Jones. I'm the director of Mute. You know, Mike and I wrote the original draft 16 years ago. And it was supposed to be my first film. And, and, and it's, it's kind of dark, weird subject matter. I don't think it lends itself to the kinds of films that studios are making these days. And I think it was at a budget level where it was a little too high to be just a straightforward, you know, small indie film. And that kind of budget, that between kind of 20 and 40 million dollars that studios used to have their own arms to deal with those kind of indie films has kind of disappeared. And it really took um, someone to take their place and, and Netflix and Amazon and Apple, those streaming sites that are sort of going for those films and making kind of more quirky, un, un, unusual, original films, you know, it kind of needed them to be to be around. I mean, I, I like I like the idea of, of, of hopefully sort of poking and prodding at different possibilities of what science fiction films can be. You know, there's a there's a quote that, that uh, Philip K. Dick had about his first experience of watching Blade Runner when it was made and how it wasn't a science fiction film. It was a futurist film. Um, and I think uh, I think what my attempt was was to was to make a, uh, a a film noir, uh, you know, a, a, a much more of a, much more recognizable of like a 70s thriller or something um, than a science fiction film. It just happens to take place in a future setting, um, and and almost treat the the science fiction elements of it um, as 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 the location of the film rather than the reason for it being um, re- reason for it existing as it does. All right, and we are recording for real talk for mute. A Netflix original movie. <laughs> Took me a second there. <laughs> we certainly are. Mute is a movie that came out at a point in time and is something we watched. Good night. <laughs> uh, Mute is... Okay, so Cam was our other Netflix original. Yes. And that was... That was like a bonus episode, so I didn't even try to do any research for it. Right. So typically for our numeric episodes, I try to do at least a little bit of research. And as we talked about, I honestly can't even recall at this point as if we were when we were recording or just bantering, but about the numbers with this involved, uh, not really too much to find. I can tell you it was released on Netflix in February 2018 on the 23rd. It looks like um, 
It's currently only available in the United States, United Kingdom, and Germany. So to the Asian markets, good, good for you, everybody else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to Australia and uh, Asia, when you guys are doing all right. Um, it is a very bad movie. It's it's truly dreadful. Uh, I, like I said, in I think we were bantering at this point, but I, I feel like I was the only person who watched this movie when it originally released. And I wanted more people to suffer and watch this piece of garbage. So, uh, unfortunately for Alex, he was sacrificed to the gods. <laughs> I uh, known had, as Duncan Jones. had not even heard of it. So, I mean, full disclosure, I... Okay, I've never seen Moon, which I've been told is great. But I fucking... It's okay. I love Source Code. I think Source Code's fantastic. Source Code is a better movie. Uh, oh, is it? Than Moon. But I like Moon better. If that makes sense. I just... Okay. The emotional... Uh, there's a couple of emotional moments in Moon that work better for me than even the most emotional moment in Source Code. So what about the, the most emotional moment in Mute? Uh, th- that's completely different genre. <laughs> it's a completely different ballpark. Uh, the most emotional movement moment in Mute for me was when uh, the girl playing Nadira, who I uh, now submit to be the new Rousey, Zeynep uh, <laughs> Salah, uh, when she finally left the screen, because holy fucking shit, she's just the worst actress I've ever seen. Dude, Alexander Skarsgård is good, and I I think he has some pretty decent comedic chops too, which he doesn't really get to flex. But like, man, does not show here. <laughs> he looks like a high schooler, like in the play, and he thinks he's going to be the big breakout thing. It's really weird because it's, you know, I get it that he has to overcompensate. Because he can't talk, and so his his facial reactions are just like times three. What when everybody does else this is doing. work? When, when does it work when one character in the movie can't the the protagonist can't speak? I mean, I'm sure there there has to be a, a movie where it works. The problem is that in a noir kind of story, that makes it even harder to connect. But I don't think I don't right. think that's a problem though. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm saying like it's on No, it's a problem, but it's right. it's not the problem. It's on top of so many other things that are a problem with it. Um, so, I'm I really 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 despise this movie. So, I want to know <laughs> what cretins out there thought this was worthy of a, a shiny red tomato. Okay. I got four shiny red tomatoes. There are a few more, but I got four. Uh, Sean O'Connell from Cinema Blend says, Blade Runner's kinky cousin. What mute lacks in originality, it makes up for in risky storytelling and unpredictably grimy plot decisions. Blade Runner's kinky cousin. Uh, Revoke this man's press credentials. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Who'd you uh, say that was the reviewer? That was Sean O'Connell. Sean O'Connell? Yeah. Cinema Blend. Of former... UFC fame? Was up there. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he moonlights as... Uh, I'm sorry, Sean O'Connell. You know what? That's that's probably exactly why he rated it so high. He has so much brain damage from the UFC. Yeah, I was about to say, I, if I remember correctly, he lost like five fights in a row by knockout, so that would make perfect sense. Then he went and watched Mute. <laughs> then, this is brilliant. Uh, Mikkel <laughs> uh, Saria from Spinoff. Says good performances, a stimulating production design work, and a remarkable third act. Go <laughs> fuck yourself. Would you agree that the third act is maybe the worst part of the movie? Yeah. Because all hope is lost by then. <laughs> You're yeah. like, oh, well, it's not going to get better than this. Um, Joey Magidson from Hollywood News says it won't be for everyone, but it's something strangely compelling to watch. Okay. I am kind of with Joey here. 
<laughs> strangely compelling to watch because, you know, we were talking earlier and you were like, why did you watch this movie? And I said, because it was Duncan Jones. And you said, yeah, but why did you finish this movie? And I was like, because, <laughs> I don't know, I was not hating it. You know, I was watching, I was like, ah, you know, Paul Rudd is doing his thing. Justin Thoreau is doing his thing. It's, I, I kind of want to see how it all plays out. You got to see how it see. plays out, baby. <laughs> God. Uh, got one more. All right. Douglas Davidson from FilmFed says, for as the base and violent as Mute is, it's also incredibly cerebral. And Netflix encourages the kind of online social engagement that cultivates discussion. Put that one at the end because I think uh, that it, it puts a lot on Netflix as far as, I don't know, social responsibility <laughs> and what happens it, to a movie after it comes do, out. Does it? Yeah. It's I mean, like, I don't know. like Netflix, what they do is they just like give this cartoon bag of money to directors and just go, here, make whatever you want. And then they're just like, all right, do whatever you want. We're going to stand over here in the corner. I don't care what you do. We'll just release it. And they'll be so sure like, to pull it at the first bit of any type of controversy or backlash. Well, obviously, uh, the Amish didn't complain. I was about to say, it obviously doesn't apply, apply to this movie, but I know there's been several comedians, I think most notably Tom Segura, who Netflix is just, pussied out of situations because if they get the slightest bit of this is just me airing a grievance that has nothing to do with this piece of shit movie uh okay you tell so, me you missed a tom segura cameo in one of the screens oh when god he first, that'd be great when he first opens his smartphone yeah it's just tom segura talking about i don't know dick jokes or something anyway we got a few things to break down here uh let's put the netflix thing on the back burner because i want to come back to that but sure. for this particular movie it's always weird when you can see someone that can make source code and then also make this. Like when you see someone that's <laughs> capable of making a movie that resonates. For, and again, obviously there's people out there that like Mute. I don't know how, but there are. But I, for me personally, source code, I remember resonated so, so heavily with me uh, emotionally. Uh, and then also like fucked me up for like a week. With that whole idea of like the afterlife and like what it could potentially like, what if you get caught in this like loop of the same thing over and over again? Uh-huh. And then I watched this and I was like, I was mad at you and I was <laughs> mad at you, Dan. Like, I was just like, this is a waste of my time. Because before I get too deep into my thoughts, when does the happenstantial pedophile character ever really work? <laughs> It's so blatantly unnecessary. We like we don't even need the character in the first place, but then to make him a pedophile and to make that a subplot to the movie that directly makes it violate the Mattis rule. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a fair point. Uh but yeah, it's like um if I could uh Dan, have you seen Running Scared with Paul Walker? No. Okay. No, I haven't. So Minor spoiler, there's a... There's a pedophile subplot. There is a pedophile subplot, but it ties together how one thing happens to another. And it's like, yeah, you probably could have done that without one of the people being a pedophile. It's like the Pulp Fiction thing. Uh, Ving Rhames didn't have to get (laughs) ass-raped in order to tie everything up. But that's just kind of how it happened, and, you know, it's what what we do. Here, it's just like Justin throws a pedophile, and Paul Rudd finds out, and he's like, I'm kind of mad at you, but all right. And then... It doesn't all it that whole thing, in my opinion, is just set up to figure out how to give Paul Rudd's character sympathy when he's dying. 
It's like he's this horrible person, but oh no, his his daughter's gonna get abused. But then, but then it doesn't really even do that because, like so I said in the first like, corner, it's un- unnecessary manipulation of the audience. Well, yeah, because if the if the movie had ended there, whatever audience there was, <laughs> Dan, you and me, yeah. Uh, if the if the movie had ended there, then you could make the argument that well, it's just supposed to be this bleak. Right. And and then in that case, the pedophile subplot makes sense because that's how you tie everything together. It's like, yeah. wow, Paul Rudd really fucked up. Not only did he murder the mother of uh, his child, but also made everything play out in a situation where his child ended up with the worst possible person that mm-hmm. could have, you know, had her. But that's not what happens because then as the movie goes on for those last 15 or 20 minutes, it kind of walks everything back. Uh, because the other thing they would have done is it would have almost kind of made sense if everything as contrived as it would be if everything had been just this sort of master plan on Justin Theroux's side to to get Paul Rudd killed yeah. and then take custody of yeah. the little girl but that's not what happens because the last 15 minutes or 20 minutes are him apparently feeling actual grief you know wanting an apology and you know what is all this nonsense because he yeah. could have just killed uh, Alexander Skarsgård, and that's it. You know, that's the last loose end, and he can he can be done with it. But instead, it just goes on and on, making you feel like, oh, he actually cared for Paul Rudd. So, like the the maddening thing about it is that you know, after he gets dressed down in the Route sixty six diner or TGI Fridays, as you called it, <laughs> uh, you, you know, he sends that text message to Leo saying exactly where to go, where Paul Rudd's going to be, uh, and that's where that's why Leo goes to get. Like, that's why Leo has his address, and that's why Leo goes to his house. So, like, he he basically signed a death warrant for Paul Rudd in that moment. But then after that, he feels like some sort of grief for some reason, despite the fact that, like, he very clearly wanted Paul Rudd to die. It... it, it it, it just felt so hamstrung together. Like, yeah, they had to, like, they, they suddenly forgot everything that came before that in the movie and just tacked on this 15 minutes that was horribly unnecessary. It feels like he was just trying to make the Bill and Duck characters just so... Complex? <laughs> no, like, unpredictable. They're just uh, crazy. So they can just, you know, their motivations will change on a dime, that type of thing. And it's... Well, I think I, I remember. Uh, uh, I think it was an episode of Script Notes. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to boo Paul Rudd. Well, he's great in this movie. An eternal baby face. I don't ever want to see him in a situation where I have to boo him. Well, wouldn't you agree? Actually, let me make my point first before we get to to Paul Rudd. Because please I, do. The, I think it was a Script Notes episode. This podcast about screenwriting, where uh, somebody, uh, one of the hosts, was saying that uh, that really, when you're making a movie, yes, you want complex characters. But not as complex as people are in real life, because in real life you have contradictions constantly, right? But trying to depict that over the course of a movie can end up getting like really messy because you only have so much. You time have to choose and, your battles for that, right? So, so maybe you know, in the real world, you could have somebody that exhibits the range of emotions that uh, Justin Thoreau goes through in the third act of this movie where, you know, he's mad at Paul Rudd. And so he sends this text and ends up getting Paul Rudd killed. And he knew that that was going to happen. But then when he sees Paul Rudd there, he uh, he feels guilty about it. But then he sees Paul Rudd's daughter and he's like, you know what? Fuck you. And, and he, you know, turns the monitor and walks over so that Paul Rudd's last image he sees is like this pedophile taking care of his daughter. Allegedly. Allegedly. But, but then... <laughs> He gets mad that Paul Rudd is 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 
is dead, but he's in denial about his role in it. So instead, he decides to blame Alexander Skarsgård. So he goes and he kidnaps Skarsgård, and he gets into his head that if he gets Skarsgård to accept that that he did it, that's his fault. Then then he's exonerated. That then then Thoreau is not longer guilty. And then when that doesn't work. And then he's like, well, fuck it, I'm going to kill him. And, you know, so all this stuff, it's it, like... It feels endlessly long, yet way too rushed. <laughs> right. Yes. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, maybe you could get it away get away with it if the movie was about Justin Thoreau. And this was like, this this entire thing was the movie. Yeah. Not if this was the last yeah. 30 minutes of the movie. <laughs> I don't mean to... Con- I mean, it's, if you're a contrarian's listener, you know, I'm always in situations like this, exactly what Hulu's talking about. I'm going to reference Blue's Ormus Color. The, it's a three-hour movie about one extremely complex character and everything else that happens around her. Right. It's like, that's you can't do that with a two-hour sci-fi movie and then you decide 75% of the way through it, you're going to try to give this character all this intense backstory and range of emotions. It's not. It's not how it works. And it's so weird to exactly what you're saying because, like, the first hour drags. If it was a text message, it'd be 27 A's, like, with the drags. <laughs> and then the last half hour, it's like, what the fuck is going on? It's like, I feel like I'm rushing through years and years of exposition and dialogue and necessary, you know, qualifiers here. Um, so, okay, so let's see if we can agree on this one thing, though. Oof. Paul Rudd. Is good in this movie. Paul Rudd's good, good in to, everything. Good to great. Well, that's not true. Halloween Six. Paul is Rudd really is bad. good, even though the script holds him back because the script does exactly no one any favors at all. I think part of that too is there's probably something he enjoyed about the idea of this of being Playing a bad guy. Type. Yeah, the mustache. That <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hope that's real. Yeah, I, I mean if there's a I hate giving this movie a compliment of any sort, but I think, <laughs> well, even then, I'm not necessarily complimenting the movie to say Paul Rudd was good. Well, I think that he he comes out shining because they they threw a character at him that's unlike what he usually plays, and he he played it really well. I and you know I was looking at my my letterbox review from when I watched this movie when it first came out, and I actually said that I found Paul Rudd distracting because it was just so. You know, it's Paul Rudd playing a bad guy, so I had trouble looking past that. But this second time around watching it, it didn't bother me at all. I was just like, "Oh no, yeah. it's Paul Rudd, and he he really looks like a maniac. He he looks dangerous. I buy it. It's not that it didn't feel like Paul Rudd playing pretend. It felt like an actual character. So uh, yeah, it didn't feel like a guy trying to play tough guy. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no, I I, I yeah. bought it. No, it's interesting. It's interesting to see Paul Rudd play against type. You know, I I think I want to see this every now and then from somebody. So like Paul Rudd going against type in like this sci-fi movie that obviously no one's going to watch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, yeah. it's it's an interesting idea. It's just there's n- there's nothing behind him that makes this character more interesting in terms of like actual development that he goes through. You know, he's just like one track mind. Like, okay, I want my goddamn papers. I'll do whatever it takes to get these papers. But I'm also going to murder this this woman who uh, birthed my child because she threatens to take away my child for some reason. Yeah, and then the the turn of him finding out that that Justin Thoreau is a pedophile and really confronting him about it, and then kind of shrugging it off. It's, I mean, I know that I'm assuming that what they were going for is that their friendship runs runs deeper than we thought, but. I, I felt like the movie didn't really handle the transition properly to where you could see that, oh, he's struggling 
with the fact that his best friend is also a piece of shit. It's uh, hilarious that this has been the focus and these guys aren't the main characters. <laughs> it's like, you know, this is, this is far and away the most interesting aspects of the movie. And it, it, oh, yes. obviously the word... The word interesting always doesn't necessarily have a positive connotation to it. So I'm not trying to say this is like the good portion of the movie. I think there is merit to what you're saying about Paul Rudd uh, at the same time versus so many other bad movies we've watched. I can't I couldn't in good conscience tell someone they should watch this just because Paul Rudd. I would be like Paul Rudd is interesting in it because it's typecast, but you don't watch the movie. Or it's against typecast, I should say. He he's not good enough to warrant sitting through this movie. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe if he was the lead and it was just him, but, but, but you know, he is definitely one of the reasons, and maybe the strongest reason why I watched all the way till the end that first time. I think that the That's world fair. is interesting. I don't think that there's mm. much going on. I mean, I don't think that he explores it, but I I, I wasn't getting Contreras Corner. I do believe that Duncan Jones has this mapped out. You know, it strikes me as he knows exactly what's going on in every corner of this city. And he's just he just chose not to focus on any of it because it's just the backdrop for this story that clearly he finds more interesting than we do. (laughs) Well, right. And and like other than the fact that this is like a a moon mooniverse, like crossover (laughs) movie, like there's there's no point for this to be set in in the timeline of set, like this could be set at literally any point in history and it would feel like the exact same movie outside of like him getting uh metal vocal cords. This, this movie feels like it could have taken place in like 1982 and it would have done the exact same thing. Yeah. I, 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 I think that there's something, maybe this speaks even to the biggest failing of the movie. And that is that I, I felt it when I watched it the first time and I felt it this time. Which is, I don't really know what it's trying to say, what it's going for. And you would mm-hmm. think that the setting, the future setting, would be key to this, right? If you're talking about a man that's removed himself from technology, or rather has been removed from technology by his family. And now it, it makes sense to set it in the future where technology is even more advanced than what we have right now. So the contrast between those two things is is powerful, right? You have this guy that doesn't even have a smartphone and he's surrounded by drones that deliver food so but i think that that contrast is not really driving the movie at all how did he end up there they don't even explain how he ended he oh no they do it's actually like a newspaper clipping at the very beginning so like i've thought having seen this movie twice i knew what to look for (laughs) but it's like uh the german chancellor calls for an amish re re emigration to germany for some reason Huh. I, like I could, I didn't read any of the articles, but that's the that's the headline that they flashed at the very beginning of the movie. Okay. Uh, well, now you got to watch it a third time. Fu- <laughs> no. A second time for you, Alex. Yeah. I, like, no, <laughs> I got to like pause it on those newspaper articles, furiously frame take frame. notes, and then and then begin my uh, Duncan Jones Mooniverse uh, fan fiction. <laughs> so my biggest thing with this that they don't delve into about Leo's character is he was clearly a virgin until he met Nadira. Because there's no way a man that old oh, yeah, would, absolutely. would obsess this hard about a chick that ghosted him. But he looks like Alexander Skarsgård. There's no way. <laughs> that That's Alex the point. Him. Yeah. No females ever paid that dude attention up until this point. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I, the, the problem is, is like everyone makes fun of how he dresses. So it, it's got to be something with the clothes, too. But, I mean, like a normal human being would just look at that, look at that face and look at that body and just go, 
All right, yeah, I can, I can. We can fix the clothes. Like this is no problem. <laughs> Maybe uh, in the future in Germany, that's just that yeah. doesn't fly. Looking like Alexander yeah. Skarsgård doesn't get you anywhere. No, and I think my favorite part about his character is that I feel like they made him Amish because like they discovered like a prop designer was really good at woodworking, so they were just like, oh, we'll just make him Amish because you know they're, they're good at woodworking too. Duncan Jones took it up over the summer before they filmed this, and he needed to show it off somehow. Oh God, it's uh, it's so many of these things we've been explaining, but it still somehow manages to be boring, which I think is like well, the problem is that it's convoluted. I I remember having trouble so much the so plot. that it just makes the viewer check out. It's yeah, just, that, yeah, th- that's that's the problem. I mean, I was glad that you know I was taking notes because it was forcing me to really, really try to figure stuff out as we were watching it. But and I'm not saying I mean obviously you know you want to pay attention when you're watching a movie, but. I think at some point when we were watching, you said this is unnecessarily complicated. And I feel that way about a lot of uh, noir that I've watched. I, I wasn't kidding. Contrast Corner is definitely not like my kind of genre. I think that uh, most of the time the the plot is too convoluted for the payoff that we usually get. Uh, oh, then don't watch Under the Silver Lake at all. Oh, yeah. Like, I've heard. I've heard. I, I, Which movie? Uh, Under the Silver Lake. That's a new one from the guy from uh, It Follows. Mm. Yeah. I, I love that movie a lot because it's just. It winds up not mattering. Like the plot winds up not mattering at all. But to me, at least, you but know, like yes, the plot is insanely complicated. But that's that's the kind of thing that it could go either way, right? Because something like The Big Lebowski, you can make the argument that it's also like, well, the plot also doesn't matter, but you you have a good time because it's entertaining. Everything that happens, even if you're not sure where the where the story is going. Uh, Are you talking about the entire run of Seinfeld? Yeah. No, but see, with Seinfeld, it's not like you're ever checking out of trying to follow the plot. You know, it's like with, with something like Inherent Vice, uh, uh, you know, Inherent Vice has a, and I know you haven't seen it, but the there is a mystery. Mm-hmm. And the way that they go about solving that mystery, really, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. You okay. know? And it's like the mystery is an excuse for for wacky characters to show up and for, you know, crazy situations to happen to the protagonist. And, you know, it didn't work for me. But then, you know, it works in The Big Lebowski, which, you know, then again, it's it's easier for me to follow the plot of The Big Lebowski. I don't know. I think that there, there's, a, in this case, in the case of Mute, there are so many players involved in this sort of, not even a conspiracy, but, you know, this this whole thing about, you know, the, there's the girls that are being prostituted on the side, and there's so many characters that are not really memorable that it all kind of becomes a blur. I know it's Alexander Skarsgård, I know there's Paul Rudd, and I know there's the pedophile Justin Thoreau. And everybody else is just kind of doesn't really stand out. Yeah. And so that's really the problem. I think that if you had characters that popped uh, characters that were more interesting, and if the things that were happening during this investigation were a little more, you know, memorable, more interesting, then I wouldn't mind the fact that the story doesn't really make much sense. You know, what do we remember? We remember the guy that's playing his his game outside while he's trying to order the food because that thing kind of jumps out at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we remember Dominic Monaghan as a, a geisha. <laughs> you remember, yes. yeah, you remember Charlie. Because he's dressed like a geisha. God damn it. I meant to look that up. Of all the things I was looking up while we were recording, I didn't look up what his character name in Wolverine was. <laughs> Did you find it? I'm looking at it right uh, now. Um, but there's, you know, like the club owner. Uh, I really hate the sound. Okay. Finish. Cause... I would say like Maxim. You know, it's like, I'm not saying that the guy's a bad actor, but he's not really. I kept forgetting who he was. 
you know, and and yeah. but if you cast somebody that's more imposing, or you give him more to do than just being like a generic uh, club owner that has ties with the with the criminal side, then you make it memorable. And then every time he shows up, every time somebody talks about him, I'm like, oh yeah, that guy, you know. But that's not what happens. Here's just a lot of names that I always have trouble putting faces to, and when I put the faces to them, all the faces look the same. So it really doesn't it doesn't help you with the story. It's so weird because you would watch this and think that it was the director and writer's first movie he ever made because it looks like someone fresh out of fucking college whose favorite movie is Blade Runner tried to make some movie that they wrote their, you know, their sophomore year. And I know that sounds so pretentious and whatnot, but it's like <laughs> – I mean, is there any way to dispute that, like, the aesthetic is meant to be exactly Blade Runner? No, but I don't think that he's hiding no. it. I mean, clearly, Duncan Jones wants to tell you that, you know, this this is, hey, this is a noir, <laughs> like Blade Runner was. I'm honestly surprised, and I don't know if I like it or not, that there's no voiceover. Because, you know, that would be, that's also like a staple of, of the genre. And yes haha you know he's mute so <laughs> in a way you couldn't have a voiceover uh or it would defeat the purpose if you had you know his <laughs> running commentary i mean because he can still think <laughs> you, you just know? have fucking scars guard the like a little siphoned off corner on the right side of the screen yeah, yeah uh, picture, signing picture just signing <laughs> uh dominic monaghan as chris bradley a mutant who can can manipulate uh, electricity and electronic objects because, of course, they just had to make up some fictional character for a fictional movie, which is currently uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, 37% of Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> a much-deserved higher rating than Mute. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't know about that, man. <laughs> oh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. I would watch that 100 times before I oh, watch 100%. this movie. E- even just for like that opening credit scene and then just like leave the rest on in like, a malaise. <laughs> I just threw my arms up in the air in celebration, Dan, when you referenced that. Anyone, dude, the opening credits of X-Men Origins Wolverine is always my go-to of defense of like, all right, it's not all bad. That opening credits is incredible. I think the idea, you know, not to derail us too much, but I think the idea of those opening credits is This is more fascinating than Mute. (laughs) I remember sitting down, being really pumped for this movie, and then those opening credits start, uh, the X-Men Origins Wolverine opening credits. And it just, something was off. I was like, I know what they're trying to do. In in theory, this is really cool. I should be really pumped, but I'm not feeling it. And it just got worse from there. <laughs> you're not going to trick me. All right, Dan, you're the malicious, malicious. F- reptilian motherfucker that suggested this movie. <laughs> so um, is it from a standpoint of it's so bad, you think we should talk about it? It's kind of... You know, whatever the opposite of a hidden gem is, uh, you, you kind of spoke to this a bit earlier. Was it one of these things of you watched this and you were like, oh, my God, this is bad. More people need to know how bad this is. Uh, Kind of. Yeah. Like there there was an, a movie earlier this year from Netflix called uh, IO that I uh, staunchly attempted to warn every person on planet Earth away from. <laughs> and uh, every person on planet Earth went, oh, this sounds terrible. I must watch this. Uh, I never really got that <laughs> satisfaction with Mute. Uh, so uh, this is my my saying. Uh, hey, wink, wink! Don't watch mute. You won't. You shouldn't do it, everybody. <laughs> but it is fascinating in the context of, like you said, Alex. This is the same person that did Moon, and the same person that did uh, Source Code. So, you know how how does that happen? Because even if you know you're like, well, we'll never make a movie that's as good as Source Code, but I can still tell you, like, hey, this didn't work on yeah. on on this movie on Mute. You know, and if I can tell you that. 
I'm sure Duncan Jones can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and how could he not even tell you that, you know, his, his movie was running 15 minutes too long? Yeah, it's... um 15. It's, it, it, like I said, it, it destroys the Mattis rule uh, for exactly no reason. And I absolutely think you could cut easily a half hour out of this. It oh, goes, 100%. It goes a little bit over two. Um, so I think we've covered all fronts because I know I said I wanted to put the Netflix thing on the back burner. I guess before I move kind of into that next tangent about what this movie kind of, to me, represents of the current film industry uh Closing thoughts on mute in general. Let's just start with that. Dan, uh, closing thoughts, highlights, lowlights. Wh- what do we learn, Palmer? Uh, uh, we, we learned not to give Duncan Jones money just for no reason whatsoever, really. If this is what he considers like his his masterpiece slash like passion project almost. Like, yeah, like Moon's decent. I've never seen Source Code. Uh, World of Warcraft, by all accounts, was a garbage uh, can of of a movie. But like, I've never seen that either. So like, seeing Moon and then seeing this, it's just like, okay, I, I don't really see what everyone sees in this guy. But I, I mean, it's fucking David Bowie's son. So I guess we're just gonna keep giving him money to do whatever he wants. Julio, I just to be on the slightly uh, positive side, not positive, slightly less negative side. I think the 10 years of development hell might have hurt it, uh, you know, and it, it might have clouded his judgment. You know, it, it maybe it got to the point where he's, after 10 years, he's finally going to get to do it and he has to make these compromises and whatever. And and we come out with a movie that's just nothing like his previous two movies. I, You should try to watch Source Code, Dan. I think you would like it. I, I think most people would like Source Code. Uh, and it makes it even more baffling now, you know, that Mute is the way it is. 90 uh, minutes on the money. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, I think that th- there's something there. I think there's something in the world. There's something on, the, you know, he's a talented filmmaker. He can, he can frame a shot. He can create moments. You know, th- there's a lot of bad moments here, but there's a lot of like good moments. It's striking when you open the, a movie with a child that's like floating and bleeding from the throat, like it gets your attention right away, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and there's, so there's, there's stuff there. It's just, I honestly, I would like to hear from him. I would, I would sit at, at a panel where he just talks for two hours about just what went wrong with Mute? Because he has to know. But at this point, you know, the movie's out, it's over, and now he can look back and reflect and, and just tell you, yeah, we shouldn't have done this. This hap- th- This was done this way because of whatever, financing or or maybe, what's his name? Uh, uh, Justin Thoreau had these these ideas. <laughs> Justin Thoreau kept pulling me aside and saying, what, what if my character was a pedophile? <laughs> <laughs> he was making everybody nervous, so we finally caved in. Yeah, I'm waiting for the, uh, the Josh Trank-like letterbox review of Mute from Duncan Jones. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen that, you need to search it out. It is uh, a treasure. Is that Josh Strank reviewing Moon? Uh, he's reviewing Fan Four Stick. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, yeah. that is so. Amazing. I'm waiting for the Duncan Jones version of that with this movie. Yeah, the mea culpa. Yeah, I mean, I will. I haven't watched World of Warcraft. I will watch, and that's mainly because I'm not interested in the game. So I think that that's definitely not my my kind of thing. I will watch the next thing he does, and and hopefully. You know, see an upswing. Rogue Trooper. There you go. Whatever that is, I'll watch it. He's he's, he's earned enough. How many Netflix in twenty twenty? Oh, is it another Netflix? I, I don't know. I'm <laughs> I'm assuming it is because Netflix is stupid. Um, but yeah, and you know, Paul Rudd was good. Justin Thoreau was good. Um, but I 
like you, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but I also wonder if you're more into the genre of noir than I am, than any of us is, maybe. Maybe there's something else that you get out of this. You know, you get a, a, a stronger kick out of the, the tropes and the way that he either turns those tropes on their head or just polishes them, puts them a, uh, puts a little futuristic uh, shine on them. Uh, that's, uh, that's fair. That doesn't mean it's not a bad movie. Oh, no, no. I'm not saying it's not a bad movie, but I'm saying, you know, if I meet like somebody that's like very much into noir and they're like, what else can I watch? I'd be like, have you tried? Movies? I realize how hypocritical it sounds, but when I watch a movie like this and then someone tries to fall back on that argument that you're making, oh, I like this. You're just trying to be a fucking contrarian. And I'm not, I mean that in the most <laughs> literal sense, not like an ironic one, but it's, I, I have a really hard time. I would have a really hard time trying to process and understand someone defending this movie is like overall good, not just bits and pieces, but. Um, well, I wouldn't say good, but maybe enjoyable. Like, you know, for somebody like we watch Ready to Rumble and it's like you enjoy that movie a lot because it's fair it's, point, you know, because of the wrestling. Because so it's so bad. If it's your jam, you know, even if it's a bad movie, you there can you find some. Yeah. Someone could like this because it's so bad. I, I could. I right. Could, I could go into that. Um, so I guess my closing thoughts before moving on to kind of winding things down here. Yeah. I mean, Paul Rudd, it, it, it looks good for the most part. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. think it looks fine. It's. It's just disjointed. If I could use yet another really pretentious and uh, egotistical way of describing a movie, I think it has an identity crisis in some parts. It can't really. I think it starts wanting to be a noir, but then by the end, this like weird drama crime thriller type thing, and it's uh, it just never really meshes for me as a viewer. It never gets out of first gear, but by the end, it's you know redlining the car. And I'm just like, this, <laughs> what the hell's going on? So that leads into kind of what I said we were putting on the back burner to bring us home with is the idea of Netflix and the fact that part of my disdain's too extreme of a word, but annoyance and um, ambivalence, longing for a, a time when making a movie was more of a actually having a movie released was more of a filtered process. And part of my basically uh, – what's the word I'm looking for here? Frustration. Frustration's a good word, yeah. Uh, with the current model right now with all these remakes and shit, it's because that makes money going to movie theaters, 3D movies, that type of shit. Things I don't care about, that makes money going to movie theaters. That also means these things are going to trickle down and these projects that don't get picked up for that are going to be signed to things like Netflix. But all this also means is with this massive oversaturation of the market is things aren't going to be as finely tuned and attended to as they may have been in the past. So in a situation like this where 20, 25 years ago, maybe mute could have turned out to be a lot better because more fingers get in the pie. Now we just kind of have to accept it for like it is here. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the entire thing's a double-edged sword. I want more original yes. content, but – that doesn't always mean it's going to be good. And uh, for the Netflix, uh, Netflix has obviously offered a lot. Uh, Kimmy Schmidt is a prime example of something that's fucking amazing. And I'm so glad it got a platform to be released on. And I'm happy for these filmmakers and, you know, stand up comedians to get all these specials released and whatnot. But like I said, it's diluting the market. And I think in the end, it kind of lowers people's expectation. It lowers the bar as far as what's acceptable and what, you know, we should be consuming. 
And I think as it pertains to mute in particular, (laughs) I think there was a time where this movie could have potentially had more people involved to fine tune it. It's just due to the era it was released in. Maybe that kind of was part of the reason it fell apart. So, so you were talking about double-edged sword. I have a different double-edged sword in that, you know, I see a lot of people say, oh, well, I want to see what a filmmaker is able to do uh, just by themselves. Like, what can a filmmaker do with with the proper budget and blah, blah, blah. Like, you're seeing it with everything. You, you saw it with uh, Quaran and Roma. You're, you're seeing it with uh, Scorsese and the Irishman. And, in, like, you can get, like, these these quote unquote masterpieces, like these amazing movies because these people are seasoned directors, but then Netflix will just hand like a blank check to someone like Duncan Jones, uh, who, you know, has some merit, but then like goes off the rails and like needs some guidance in order to like actually make something coherent. So like, then you have those people clamoring for like studio, studio interference to a degree and like having somebody come along and say, Hey, are you, are you sure like this works? Cause like to me, this doesn't work. And, and you know, it, it's that double-edged sword of, do we want creators to create or do we want studios to actually, you know, decide to figure out like, Hey, is this workable? Can we release this? If not scrap it and get rid of it. And then you lose that creator's dream. So like, for creators, they're thinking, oh, I want the Netflix way of just, like, give me a blank check. I'll do whatever I want versus, like, I'd rather not be in a studio system, so fuck that. I'll, I'll just go get a check. Yep. Yeah, but Resentment I think that... was the word I was looking for, by the way. <laughs> what was the word? Resentment. Oh. I came across <laughs> it. I think uh, I think you take the good with the bad. And, I mean, I earlier I was trying to pinpoint when in the – in the avalanche of Netflix original content mute happened because, you know, of that quote that was saying, yeah, you know, Netflix just kind of let Duncan Jones do whatever he uh, do, whatever he wanted, which might as well, you know, might've happened. I, you know, obviously we don't know for sure, but it makes sense, you know, especially like because the case, uh, until, until they don't any longer benefit from it. Netflix is just inclined to say, yeah, just do whatever and give us what. Right. But I mean, you know, yeah. it's like if you're, if you're getting the guy that did moon and then did source code, it it's, it makes sense that they would mm-hmm. be like, yeah, sure. We trust you, you know, whatever you want to yeah. do. So in, in that sense, I don't really fault them for letting Duncan Jones, like for indulging him, you know, they just trusted him and, and, Something went right. That's why I was saying, you know, I would love to know what went wrong. (laughs) I I want to give Duncan Jones the credit of the fact that he knows that this movie didn't pan out the way it was supposed to. Why? I really want to know. But as far as the, to me, more outlets of content is always a good thing. I think that you. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that you need a transition. You know, there's always going to be a transition because originally you need to fill out those outlets with content. And Mm -hmm. yes, I think that in a rush to produce stuff, you might be green lighting stuff that maybe wasn't ready. And so I understand that frustration, but I also know that that's kind of like part of the process. Uh, that's how a studio kind of like learns. Assuming they don't go broke in the, in the, in the process, you know, that's kind of how they learn, you know, it's like, Oh, <laughs> Netflix probably won't do another mute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. And, and so. Muter. <laughs> mute too. That's a, that's a Pokemon. Uh, <laughs> Oh, you don't have to tell me. (laughs) Uh, So I think that everybody has had a bumpy road whenever they started, especially the early ones. Like I think Netflix, you know, with their originals. uh, And then I don't know who who was next, like Amazon or maybe Hulu. But everybody kind of has like... Amazon. 
It was Amazon. Yeah, I think that everybody has like their turkeys early in their career. And then slowly they kind of like fine tune stuff to where I can just point at original productions from like pretty much I think every streaming service. I can say, man, that's good. And I'm glad that that got a platform. Now, in order for us to get here, we had to like, we had to get the Netflix team or the Amazon Prime team or the Hulu team to figure stuff out. And part of that figuring stuff out meant, well, mistakes were made. Money was wasted. <laughs> There's still shit that comes out that's not warranted, though. Yeah, but that happens with like the the standard studio system. The, no, I, yeah, my that's I'm just saying it's and it's not going to change the way the model's set up. They Netflix makes so much money they could produce twice as much as they are right now and still make money hand over fist. It, it's yeah, but my thing is like this new model and way that we're doing things, and it's not going to change. My opinion does not matter. To me, what it does is basically it's what we're in effect doing is lowering the bar as far as quality expectations go. And sure, what goes into making something that's quality. But I think the percentage remains Let's the get same. Get Scorsese on the horn. He, he would have something to weigh in here. <laughs> no, but but wouldn't you say that the percentage remains the same? Let's say before, you know, you had, say, 100 movies. And out of those 100 movies, you know, one was amazing, a masterpiece. And now you have 10,000 movies. And so you get like, I don't do math, 10 that are masterpieces. masterpiece? No, <laughs> you know? no, I would not agree with that at all. You, you don't think the percentage has remained the same? You no. think that the percentage of really, really great stuff has diminished? Yes. No, man, <laughs> you need to watch more stuff. <laughs> I, I try and it's, okay, so I guess my thought of what's happening and what's going to happen, uh, TV's pretty much dead, like network television. I mean, the Super Bowl and shit like that does great. But 10 years ago, on Thursday night, Uh on one night, you know what I'm going to say? We had Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, The Office, and Community all like in their peak form. There's nothing that comes close to that right now. And that's not to say, you know, 10 years before that, there wasn't all this great shit. Like, you know, but my point is network TV is not coming back. And I think... What's eventually going to happen is the movie theaters are going to be meant for Star Wars, Disney movies, remakes, Disney. It's just going to be Avengers and all that shit, whereas we're going to have to start filtering. And the problem is, as as a viewer, you're just going to have to put more of an effort into finding what you want to watch. Oh, well, see, that's where we – I don't have a problem with that. (laughs) But, Dan – you can be the tiebreaker here. How do you feel about the percentage? Do you think that the percentage of good to great stuff remains when the content increases? Or do you think that it actually decreases? Mm, I don't know. That's tough to say. I, I don't want to get in the middle of this. Guy. <laughs> no, like, no it, it's actually tough to say because like, I've watched probably about pff, the same number of movies as last year uh, on Netflix. And I have found like two... No, three really great movies for me. And then, like, the rest are just like, yeah, they're good. Or, like, and eh, they're fine. Or, oh, my God, what the fuck happened here? Uh, and, and last year, it was like, oh, I have, like, three mo- like four movies that are, like, amazing that I, I want everyone to fucking watch. And I haven't gotten there yet. Now, of course, uh, we're recording this on the eve of The Irishman. Marriage Story hasn't come out yet. Uh, and, and we all know the magnum opus of Michael Bay, Six Underground, is uh, <laughs> is yet to be released upon this world. But uh, I don't know. Like, I, I see what Alex is saying. It, like, it does seem like the quality has dipped quite a bit. Like, yeah, the pool's a bit shallower in, in terms of, like, actual depth in, in movie. But it's just so vast now that, yeah, it's hard to find that, that deep spot. 
You want to know how low expectations of it's the the South Park where James Cameron has to go to the bottom of the ocean to bring the the bar back up. He's got to move it back up. <laughs> People think Joker is an intelligent movie. That's how far we've fallen. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. How do you feel about Joker, Dad? Oh, I loved it. Ah, oh, like, there you I, go. I don't, I, I don't think it's. In, I don't think it's like this super smart movie. I like the look at like, I, I, I like the look at like mental health and like what a, a failing system will will do to somebody. Uh, especially when they're pushed. Uh, but like, uh, you know, the discourse behind it was like the fucking funniest thing reading it afterwards and having watched the movie. And I'm just like, you guys, you guys didn't watch the movie before you wrote any of your shit. Like what? Like you're all idiots. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, that wasn't to single out anyone that enjoyed the movie. Cause I mean, at the end of the day that Joaquin, I don't know how Joaquin Phoenix could be bad in anything. He's, he's always going to be great. Joker's yeah. here nor there. I just always got to get my <laughs> digs in it. So to end this on a positive note, because I don't mean to bury the whole system the way it is right now, because, again, just based on uh, mine and even just all of our opinions, it's not going to change. That's where it's going. It's like 3D movies. I've been speaking out against that for 10 years now, but it makes money, uh, particularly but, in the know, Asian markets. Think, so they're going to keep could, doing it. Yes, but I think you could see the change even like on something like 3D. I mean, we know because we, you know, I still work at a movie theater and, and, you know, you used to, like, the push towards 3D was, it felt to me that it was a lot harder when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And then they've kind of slowly realized that, oh, yeah. well, you know, some people just are not interested. Look, I am all willing to be proved wrong. But I think what's been happening is they've been conditioning an entire generation, the most active generation on social media and everything, to expect the movie theater experience is Marvel movies uh disney movies i I say that they're the same thing but it's (laughs) i think they're conditioning an audience to expect movie theater experience to be one thing and then all your artsy fartsy bullshit is going to fall to the wayside at these little fringe movie theaters or on streaming services and things like that but like i said to bring this home because we could be here all night and end it on a positive note one of the good things that comes up from this is people that work really hard their entire careers get to see fruits of their labor they get to actually see something on a screen and actually get to point to something and say, mom, watch this, that type of thing. That's cool. And there are a place, there is a place in this world for nothing shit. Ozark is the most <laughs> junk food ass television there's around. And I love it. I love it. Can't wait till it comes back. So, you know, there's a place for all of it. But when I watch a movie like this and the discussion, obviously, with two intelligent gentlemen like yourselves, it, it obviously, it'll, the d- discussion will evolve into topics like that. So, the moral of the story is don't watch mute. <laughs> exactly. That's that's really what it comes down to. Well, don't watch mute, but do not let that turn you away from trying something new. Because like that quote I read, you know, it was it's a shame if the the failure of mute makes uh one, the audiences not want to try a new concept, you know, something that's not a franchise. And also two, the studios the producers don't want to invest on something that's not a franchise because, you know, they just point at Mute and Duncan Jones. And it's like, no, you should, just like every franchise, you know, doesn't have good movies all the way through. New content, original ideas, they're not good all, not all of them good, but that doesn't mean that there aren't good ones. So you should just keep trying the new stuff. That's the exact point to this. That's part of, if you are going to try to be a cinephile in the year of 2019, you're going to have to accept that you're going to have to wade through more shit than you would have 20 years ago. 
you're going to have to basically yeah. go through more things like mute to get to things like uh, – the point was the – But that's good. No. That, I mean, it's not good, like not the waiting through shit part, but the fact that there's so much available is good. We're going to have to agree to disagree <laughs> on that. Did you not see my giant rant on the current state of wrestling right now that it's getting ruined by the <laughs> absurd amount of content that's out there? Do you not understand that the whole thing? It feels less special when there's more of it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. eat yeah, chocolate yeah. every day, chocolate's not going to matter that much. Yes, but you don't have to eat chocolate every day. Okay. If you watch a movie every day, it's not going <laughs> to seem as special. Anyway, if you want to watch a good Paul Rudd movie on Netflix, watch The Fundamentals of Caring. Not a perfect oh movie. Oh, my God. Thank you. Oh, did you like that movie? <laughs> oh, yeah. We love that movie. Yeah. It, yeah it's, uh, I watched that, and I really ended up enjoying it. it it's silly, but it's it's a good time. Yeah. There's one there's one shot at the very end that looks uh, green screen to all shit, but uh, outside of that, it's fine. The the massive uh, 360 panning shot when they're yeah at the, the... the 360 pan shot was like oh oof yeah that... <laughs> I don't know who greenlit this but okay that was like the claw scene in the bathroom in X Men Origins Wolverine that wasn't finished when they sent it to theaters <laughs> so it looked like MS Paint drew on his claws <laughs> anyway we cannot escape X Men Origins Wolverine it all comes back to X Men Origins Wolverine all right so that was a, a fun discussion on mute. Without question, until I'm proven differently, the most in-depth discussion about Mute on the internet when this thing gets published. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. How, how long did you guys go uh, for? Uh, oh, uh, Caleb didn't even watch it. I watched it. Uh, <laughs> I don't even remember what episode it was on. I think I said, I think I spoke for like a minute and a half on it. It was just like, this thing's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, at the beginning of the show, obviously, we had the Netflix and Swill plug uh, um, or uh, explanation in there, but... Uh, Dan, where y'all at? Where can we find y'all? Uh, easiest place to find us is Netflix and you know, uh, I think we, I think I actually took inspiration from you guys when you like said you had a website, and I was like, oh, well, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll just fucking do that. Who cares? Just kind <laughs> they of actually have everything. reviews on their website. <laughs> nice. Our, our we, website. I pay episodes. somebody to write reviews. <laughs> think about that. It looks so professional. It, yeah. So uh, Netflix and for us, we are the contrarians.com as we cover in the opening. Uh, the festive years provide our opening and closing tracks. Opening track is last day and closing track, summer 99. Our logo is designed and provided by Hans Ruth Gieser, uh, who has two podcasts one Spanish, Nacion Combi. Uh, you can find that on every podcatcher. It's about Peruvian current affairs mostly. Uh, and then he has one in English called Living in Peru that is. Uh, on iVox, and it's about immigrants to Peru. Uh, he also has a website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, you can tweet at him, at mildemonios. You can email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. Just talk to him about whatever. Ask him to do comics for you, to uh, do logos for you. Ask him if he's watch mute. You know, Hans will probably I, I hope he it. hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> or he has, and he loved it. Uh since he didn't like to fly. We just don't know with him anymore. Uh, Dan, anything you've watched, listened to, read recently that you'd like to plug to the listening audience? Uh, so Julio knows this because I tweeted this out, but uh, my, my plan today was to uh, get home from work, take a nap, then go see Knives Out, then uh, edit a show, and then do this. Uh, unfortunately, I skipped the nap, but uh, <laughs> I, I did uh, because traffic was a piece of shit. But I did see Knives Out, and... Uh, I will say it's a terrible whodunit movie because it very blatantly tells you who done it and how uh, <laughs> it, through the middle. Uh, but then it transforms into like this thriller movie 
Uh, and I, I actually really enjoyed it, despite the fact that it is an awful, awful whodunit. But as an actual movie, I had a lot of fun. You know? So, yeah, go check out Knives Out. It's definitely on my list. Um, to keep the, the Paul Rudd theme, my my plug will be uh, a show that you guys have covered. And I, oh, I yes. skipped the review because I, I knew I was going to watch it, so I didn't want to get spoiled. But uh, what is it called? Living With Myself? Living with yourself. Living with yourself. It's, uh, oh, that's the one he did Hot Ones for, and that episode of Hot Ones was incredible. Yeah, he is. Uh, and the episodes are so short. <laughs> nice. I, I watched yeah, the half hour episodes. Yeah, I watched the first two when I was in Peru, and I was like, "All right, when I get back, I'm gonna binge the rest." Uh, and of course, I haven't yet because it's been busy. But uh, definitely, really, really funny, really emotional. And those of you who are Spider-Man fans who are familiar with the Clone Saga, like the first two episodes, I. I was like, wow, there's a lot of like clone saga echoes in, in Oh yeah, definitely. This. So I was I was really, really happy that it turned out to be to be good. So it's your turn, Alex. Um Fundamentals of Caring. Fundamentals of Caring. There you go. Oh, no, no, no. Uh Will Ferrell's Saturday Night Live from last week. Saturday Night Live's so easy to watch now, it's ridiculous. Like, unless you hear something like, Oh my god, you see this, and that it only happened on the live broadcast. But other than that, like Sunday morning, everything's on YouTube. Like they upload like the entire episode and everything. I love Will Ferrell. Uh, he did his opening monologue. Uh, Ryan Reynolds was in the crowd and it was just this thing. Will Ferrell's trying to do his monologue and he's like, are you Ryan Reynolds? And then so the whole monologue becomes Will Ferrell being so fixated on the fact that Ryan Reynolds is in front of him that he just keeps doing like everything directed exactly at him. The whole episode's good. A lot of people shit on SNL these days because justifiably so, because they get way too political constantly. But this episode did a pretty good balance of just absurdity and just really getting back to what SNL is funny at is just really dumb shit. So go watch Will Ferrell's SNL on uh, their YouTube channel. All right. That was mute. Dan, can't thank you enough for staying up late with us and doing this. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, just so I could hear your reaction to this uh, wild and wonderful movie. It was it was definitely worth it. It will now be mentioned in the same sentence as Christmas with the Cranks as uh, <laughs> low points. That's right. I didn't get to ask the question, Alex. Was it worse than Christmas with the Cranks and or Jilly? Uh, I mean, I'd rather watch Jilly again. <laughs> I can't. And good conscience commit to Christmas with the Cranks, though. I don't know. Yeah, the the jury's still out on that, which is the furthest we've ever gone with that question. The lines have blurred. <laughs> All right, what's next? What's next? It's uh, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Listeners, pray, pray for me, please. I, I've got a. We've got. Uh, about two and a half weeks before recording that. So yeah, so you're gonna cram. I've got approximately 94 Avengers movies to or uh, Marvel <laughs> movies to watch before then. So, all right, that was mute. We appreciate y'all listening to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. And next time, it's an end game. The next one has to be his Avengers, where he just brings everything together. So we get Rockwell. Um, Rockwell is multiple man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Jay Gyllenhaal, I guess he would be like the guy that takes over other people's bodies. And, no, he's uh, he's Spider Man. No, come on. We, no, we, 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 we finally fulfill that 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 universal dream we've had since Spider Man Two of Jake Gyllenhaal being Spider Man. There you go. And and Skarsgård is the Hulk. Perfect. The smart we, Hulk. We, as he can we talk. did it. Book it, Kevin Feige. <laughs> Feige and Jones, the team up that we're waiting for. 